Yeehaw! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, there we go. JV does it again. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and... (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and hit stop. Welcome to episode 15 of the Plastic Posse Podcast, sponsored by Goodman Models. Today, we feature the second in our series of roundtable discussions, and this time our discussion is going to center around Star Wars modeling. We have John Bias, Enrique from the Race for Terra, and Rick Baker as our special guests, joining our own resident Star Wars modeling experts, Doug and TJ, so I know you're going to enjoy that. So, John, TJ, uh, Doug's uh, not with us tonight. He's got other commitments, but how are you guys doing? I'm doing pretty good. I had a, I had a pretty good day today, so I can't complain. I'm fantastic. Tomorrow's Friday, and I'm excited to hit the bench this weekend. So how's that sub coming along, JB? Oh, it's all good, Scott. You know, it's, uh, it's a behemoth uh, and one of those mojo busters, which we'll talk about in a little bit. TJ, you finished a, yet another model this week. Yeah, I did. That's number six, man. You're like a factory over there, a machine. Yeah, I'm on fire, dude. Do me a favor and package up whatever you're uh, you've got over there. Bottle some of it up and send it my way. Well, I'm I'm uh, I hope I uh, I hope I just don't burn out. That's that's um uh, that's my biggest fear. So we'll see how it goes. Well, you're riding that wave right now, doing some good work. That's for sure. Yeah, but waves crash, so don't forget that. <laughs> We also wanted to let everybody know that episode 15 is sponsored by Stephen Schaefer, Jeremy Moore, Robert Abercrombie, and Terry Wilkinson. So thanks a lot, guys. These Posse members all used our PayPal link to help us out, and we really appreciate it. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help the Posse, it's really easy. That's right. Just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. No WW at the beginning. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a little heart icon. You can also access this heart link on our podcast episode pages on this site. Just click the little heart, and then you can donate any amount you would like. We really appreciate the support. Or if you don't want to donate, that's okay too. You can still support the Posse by taking a few moments to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Five stars really help us to get the show out to more people who are interested in scale modeling podcasts. The Plastic Posse is sponsored by Goodman Models, makers of the terrific Super Sanding Blocks. These blocks allow you to sand your models with precision. You guys need to get a set of these. So head on over to GoodmanModels.com and order a set. Scott recently spoke with Anthony about what makes these blocks such great products for your modeling bench. Well, hey, everybody. I am here with the main man, Anthony Goodman from Goodman Models, and we are talking about one of my favorite products on my model bench, the Goodman Models Super Sanding Blocks. Anthony, how are you? I'm great, Scott. How are you doing? 
Well, hey, uh, for those people that don't already have these things, and shame on you guys, um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how uh, you came to make these and where the idea came from. Well, they were born out of necessity, right? As, as all uh, kinds of things like that are. They, they really added some precision removal of plastic material to my life that was sorely missing before that. You know, I was always interested in spicing up my models, kit bashing them to make, you know, variations and that kind of thing. And I'd be doing it with, remember Milliput? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you'd be trying to like, you know, sculpt something. It was just going horribly. And, you know, one side be different than the other. And it was just really hard to get anywhere and it took forever. So having the super sanding blocks where it's a flat, it's a perfectly flat block with your sandpaper on it. When you're planning something, it lets you kind of have that positive contact and feel exactly where you're sanding. You got that nice smooth surface and, and you could really make something actually flat. My original blocks started out a little bit bigger. They were like five inches long. And then I got them down to three by inch and a half. It didn't fit in the hand very well. And so that's how it kind of arrived at that size was that it was very comfortable in your hand. It was, didn't feel like you're hanging on something that was going to fly away. The thing is, there was nothing quite like that that I had or had access to like going to the shop. I thought this is something that people would find useful. You know, I had a homemade set at a club meeting one time and the guy sitting beside me says, well, where'd you, where'd you buy those? Those look really cool. I said, well, I made them and I, I'll make you a set. You know, that was the original kind of genesis of it. You know, like most modelers, I've got a whole bench full of sanding sticks and flexi files and, yep. you know, pieces of sandpaper and they all have their uses. But yeah. you've really got the control when you're on a thin ledge or you're you're very, very, you need to sand an edge without rolling over the side. Yeah, that was a big issue for me because when I was just sort of using loose paper, which I still use all the time just for different stuff. Let, let's, let's put it this way. I was trying to shape plastic and create angles or plane something down and have like a flat surface, like maybe a join somewhere that you or a seam. You can't have a like a flexible piece that just follows the contours depending on the hardness of the material, right? You need to be able to kind of like carve through it in an equal fashion, right? But the actual shape stuff, that's the, the strength of the super sanding blocks is it kind of really gets you there. The set of the super sanding blocks, which is what I have, comes in a range of papers. And maybe talk about the grits that you chose and why... Yeah. So in terms of the grit selection, there was a lot of thought put into that. And we were looking at, at the time, trying to sort of cover the whole range of uh, model building activities. So we started off with the 80. The 80 grit was really intended for working with resin. If, if anyone has experience with resin kits, you yeah. get those atrocious pore stubs and, you know, big, huge gates. So when it comes down to kind of like shaping plastic or if you're maybe cleaning up old parts or cleaning up some angles or changing angles that's when you get into the 1 180 the 220 and the 320 and, and to me those are the ones i use the most frequently because they've got enough bite to really you know you can change something very quickly in terms of an angle or getting rid of like uh, i know a lot of guys use super glue as a filler right mm -hmm. or, or all yeah. your various putties i don't know no one loves to sand forever and so you want to you want to be able to get through them quickly. So it's kind of like the combination of those three for shaping. And and then the 400 and 600 is really kind of a cleanup grits. Those grits seem to be just the right combo to kind of start to get you through quickly. And I always encourage people when they get the set, like go through them. Don't just sort of pick out one. 
control and precision. And then you've also got a full range from your rough work, like for resin and for shaping all the way up through the 600 grit. And you've got a really nice progressive steps on, on your set. And then if you order a set, those also come with like a, a stand to put them in on your bench, right? Yeah. So the, the super stand was a later addition and that, that actually came from my good pal, Stu. He was always telling me, you need, you need something extra. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I don't have time for that. It's enough. But you know, he was right. I got talking to my other pal, Sean at Sean's custom model tools. And I kind of said, all right, well, Stuart's convinced me I should do this thing. It's got to look like this. And I think I had a sketch and I just showed him over, you know, chat <laughs> And, and within an hour, he was like working on a prototype and it came out beautiful. And it's one of those things I didn't know how badly I needed it. Anyway, so I came out with that, I think about two years ago and they've been great. People are, I think, really liking them. It looks sharp and it's another organizational tool in your arsenal. It's one of those things that really helps kind of keep it all together and at your fingertips, right? Yeah, I love the way they stand vertically in the base, the stand that comes with the set. Got the colored dots on the end of each yeah. of the standing blocks to show which grit they are. And so it's easy to visually just, okay, I need this one right here and then put it back when you're done. Yeah. In the very early days, I was like writing on the sides in pen. And then I came up with the idea of like, well, it should be a recessed dot no matter how dirty it gets or because you use, you use them with wet sanding as well as dry sanding, right? So that kind of turned out to be a really good solution just to keep it visible. It never rubs off or wears away or you can blow it out or wipe it down if it after you, you've used it for a little bit. I, I got to say, I use them on every, on every build. They certainly do what they do very well. I think that's a, a pretty good list of features there. Anthony, you've done a great job. I love mine and I look forward to getting lots and lots of years of use out of mine. Yeah, right on. I, I hope that they're lasting a long time for people. I'd like to thank you, Scott, and the Posse for all your support. You guys have been uh, huge supporters of, of me and, and my little endeavor. And, and, you know, it's an awesome podcast. And as you know, I'm a sci-fi guy at heart. So I love hearing what you guys are up to and I appreciate the support. Thanks a lot. The products are terrific. You're a good friend as well. We look forward to having you back on the show very soon, maybe for one of our uh, roundtable episodes yeah. on science fiction. Absolutely. All right. Well, take care, Anthony. Thanks a lot. Thanks. We also want to remind everyone about our fellow scale modeling podcasts. They're all great shows, so please check them out. We have On the Bench with Dave, Ian, and Julian, Plastic Model Mojo with Dave and Mike, Scale Model Podcast with Stuart and Friends, Model Geeks with Darren and his crew in Just Making Conversation with James and Malcolm. We also follow some other great content creators. The awesome blog, Sprue Pies with Frets, which is Stephen Lee. And on YouTube, we love Jim Bates, a scale Canadian TV. Thanks, TJ. Hey, I just want to say, you know, rather sad news today. We all knew this was coming. Uh, the AMPS uh, Armor Modeling Preservation Society's annual show Scheduled for later in April in Virginia has been officially canceled. This is of no surprise, you know, with the ongoing pandemic, it's rather unfortunate, but the show has been rescheduled already to April 2022. So I'm certainly looking forward to it already. In addition to the AMPS cancellation, though, there are some opportunities to attend shows. One will be hosted by IPMS Roscoe Turner in Indianapolis, Indiana on the 17th of April. It's at a county fairground. So they're taking into account social distancing and making all the proper precautions. So super excited about that. I have a work trip planned, unfortunately, that weekend, but I'm hoping it's canceled so I can make the long drive over to Indy. 
And also, I'd like to just give another reminder for the folks on the West Coast, IPMS San Diego, in cooperation with the San Diego Model Car Club and the San Diego Air and Space Museum, are pleased to announce that they are planning to host the San Diego Model Expo on June 5th, which is a Saturday at the museum itself at Gillespie Field. The details are available on their website, ipmssd.org. Note that arrangements of this event are dependent on local health regulations that are in effect at this time. That's really great that we still have some shows going on. And then, of course, August, uh, we got the IPMS Nationals coming. So everybody keep your fingers crossed that these shows are actually going to come off. And in addition to the, those uh, shows that are coming up, what do we have this week uh, for our social media shout outs, TJ? Well, we've got a couple of great things. I want to lead off with letting everyone know, if you didn't know already, but the Plastic Posse podcast is now on Instagram. We have our own Plastic Posse Instagram, and it is just at Plastic Posse Podcast. We just started it, I want to say, three days ago. So not a whole lot of content there right now, but we'll start to add stuff. And those of you that are familiar with Instagram know you can like cross post between Instagram and Facebook. So look out for that, uh, which will be cool. I love Instagram. I think it's it's a it's a good platform. So, yeah, that's pretty exciting, TJ. It looks like we have quite a few followers already. So that's awesome. Yep, three days, and we have uh, over two hundred followers already, which is pretty cool. Not gonna lie. And uh, like I was telling you earlier, Scott, your T thirty four is a big hit. It's got lots of likes, so people like it, and we keep trying to tell you it's awesome. Moving on, so I'm going to start with uh, a YouTube channel called champion scale modeling and it's uh run by a chap named jason champion so if you just go to youtube and look up champion scale modeling and you'll find his videos i've been a subscriber of his for a long time and he does a good mix between armor and aircraft of course i like the armor videos better but i also like watching people i like watching people build anything really but he he has a a really good uh i i guess flow you would say like his i just i like his presentation uh he has a good attitude when it comes to modeling you know he he tells it like it is he doesn't you know reinforce hobby dogma and that all that kind of stuff and uh, I yeah, and he's doing a series right now. It's like an intro to uh, armor modeling. Obviously, I'm not, not going to toot my own horn, but I'm not like a you know a beginner in armor modeling. But I I just enjoy watching people who enjoy their hobby, and you can tell that that Jason does. And his intro to armor modeling is a really cool series where he starts from you know a simple but yet easy to build kit, which is where you should start if you're starting. You know, get a a, a decent kit that you can put together and paint it and he starts there and he shows you the building process tells you you know any any issues you may run into and then he paints it in an interesting scheme does a little bit of weathering and as the videos i think he's up to his fourth video now each video gets a little more and more complex so it gives you a beginner a nice linear progression in armor modeling to basic to now getting to some more quote-unquote advanced techniques so if you're interested in that kind of stuff we're just watching someone who really enjoys his hobby, I would go check it out. Yeah, he does good work for sure. I think he's going to gonna have a good future ahead of him. So for my social media shout out, I want to talk about a Facebook page, Scale Model Projects by Jeremy Moore. Uh, Jeremy Moore, is he's a, he's a friend of the podcast, but he does mostly 172nd scale aircraft. And he does incredible, uh, really beautiful builds. In fact, his little uh, Tamiya BF109G is on the cover of the latest uh, Tamiya modeling magazine. 
issue number 305. So have you guys uh, seen seen that build? I have. I'm a subscriber to Pocket Mags. And uh, it's like you said, it's right on the cover. Read it the first day it came out. It's simply a fantastic build. And he is he he is a master class modeler. And in addition to aircraft, his armor projects are are stellar. Uh, you know, I know TJ's a fan of Sherman, so I, I'd recommend checking out his Facebook page. He's got a Firefly on there in a whitewash scheme. Again, really, really well done. I think one thing that I look for when somebody is a really good modeler is can they make their project look actually bigger than it actually is? And his 72nd scale aircraft really look like they're 48 scale or even larger. They're just really, really nice builds. So great job, Jeremy. Everybody check that uh, Facebook page out. All right. And moving over uh, to Instagram again, I want to say I mentioned him when we kind of did our test run kind of intro to the shout out segment. But uh, there's a, a guy on Instagram. He goes by the hill one three five. That's that's his Instagram handle. Very, very talented uh, AFE modeler, mainly World War Two. Not not a big footprint on Instagram. And it's a it's a shame, really, because he's doing some really top notch work. He recently finished a um, a T-40, which is, I believe, some sort of small early war Russian tank. One of the little tiny ones, I believe. Yep. And it's a he did a really beat up and and faded like whitewash over 4BO green and it is stellar. I mean it is really good. I can't I can't say enough good things about it. Um and he he's done some other work too that you you really want to check out. Yeah, I'm just looking over his page right now. He's got some really great work. Uh specifically I like the the tiger and the ambush scheme and he's really diverse in his in his colors too when it comes to you know, his modeling, he's got Panzer Gray, his green schemes, you know, uses aftermarket, just all around really nice work and, and great photographs too. So thanks for, uh, thanks for giving me the tip. I, I just subscribed right now or following, I guess you could say. All right. Nice job, TJ. Now he's a plus one. So, so as a, uh, a little bonus to our social media shout out, the posse actually got a shout out from uh, a fellow named Robbie Noft, I think is how I say his last name. Hopefully I didn't say that wrong, Robbie. Sorry if I did. He goes by the model guy on YouTube. And it's it's funny, I just I've been a subscriber of his for, for a while. He's mainly a aircraft modeler, but he's kind of ventured into armor a little bit. And uh today on the twenty fifth of February, he released a new video. He builds uh Tamiya's F sixteen CJ in one forty eight scale. Great job, by the way. About halfway through the video. Uh, he gave us a shout out that he's a listener of the podcast. And, you know, I was I was really touched. I was sitting in my truck before work this morning and uh, just playing with my phone and, and watching some YouTube videos. And I saw that and I was like, man, that, you know, that really made my day. That was a, a good way to start the day. So I passed along to the, the other posse members so we could all watch it. Because I think I was the only um, subscriber of his out of you guys. I'm, yeah, you were, but I am now. But yeah, that was that was really cool, uh, man. So. You know, we really appreciate that. That that's awesome. And and like I, I left you comment on your video. I'm glad you're enjoying the je- uh, the show, and we appreciate uh, you know any kind of words. Uh, that was really cool. Really nice uh, work on that F16 too. Really nice. Yeah, I checked out his channel earlier as well, and watched the F16 video. Great work. And then you know my love for German armor took me to his Sturm Tiger video. So he did a he did a really nice job with a single scheme on a Sturm Tiger. And what was really good is he gave a 
a great review of the kit. And I took some notes because I have it on my stash and hope to build it at some point. So great content. Keep it up. JB's going to add the links for the social media sites to our Facebook page so you can reference those. And I will also add the links to our show notes for the episode so you guys can link on over to this great content that we're finding. Speaking of social media, we are all about cross-promoting other shows and social media content creators, even other podcasts, and sometimes even if they aren't specifically about scale modeling. So we have a promo we're going to play you here for a podcast called Fire Breathing Kittens. It's a D&D based storytelling adventure podcast. Here's a promo for their show. Enjoy. Are you itching for a good story? Laughter among friends, maybe even a mystery or two? Well, you're in luck. Fire Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears, so you can listen to these adventures in any order you like. So, join us on a real play D&D quest as we solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. Fire Breathing Kittens podcast. Fantasy, action, mystery, friendship. All right. Well, hopefully uh, you enjoyed that. Go ch- if you're interested in Dungeons and Dragons and uh, want to give that a listen, uh, check it out. Well, we have uh, kind of a news item here. We we here at the uh, Posse we wanted to congratulate our good friend Malcolm Childs from the podcast Just Making Conversation. Longtime listeners to the Posse, you'll you'll rem- you'll recall that uh, Malcolm started a charity that's a really amazing charity over in the UK called Models for Heroes. This is an organization that helps wounded veterans and first responders through model making. Recently, Malcolm and his organization were recognized with a special citation from the UK, from the government, which is really, really awesome. You can see all the details on our Facebook page, or you can go over to the Just Making Conversation uh, Facebook page and uh, check that out. So anyway, we're just really proud of the contributions of Malcolm and his team and their efforts over there in the UK. Just wanted to ask everybody to please help support Models for Heroes if you can with a donation. It's a worthy cause and they do really terrific work. Yeah, congratulations, Malcolm and team. That's awesome work and it's even better to be recognized at that level. So you make us all proud in the hobby. We kind of already talked about uh, TJ has another build under his belt. Uh, TJ, tell us a little bit about the Mark One you finished this week. Uh, so earlier this week, I finished Tacoms, Tacoms, however you want to call it, Mark One Mail that I've had kicked around on my shelf for two years. I mean, I've had it longer than that, but I think it's been built for almost two years. I've painted it three times, at least that I remember, and was never satisfied with it. And I finally more or less was satisfied with the color and just the base paint on it. So I started weathering it and um, it's one of the male, one of the tanks out of eight that was sent to Palestine in 1917 or late 1916 into early 1917. Uh, There's four males, four female tanks. I was not really happy with how it turned out, kind of fought it the whole way, but I pushed through it and got it done to a point that I was more or less okay with it, that I, I wasn't willing to go any further with it. So it took some pictures, put it in the in the cabinet, which where it will stay. I'm, I might try to get rid of it on eBay. I don't know if anyone <laughs> wants a okay painted Mark one. So we'll see, but I, yeah, it's okay. 
we'll we'll let the posse listeners decide from the, the themselves. The pictures are up on our Facebook page. I think it's really well done. Looks really terrific. I appreciate it. Those steel beams on the top of the tank look fantastic. The weathering that you did on those and rest of the tank looks terrific too. I think that's the best part. I, I'm the most happy with that. I mean, on a whole, look, I'm not saying it's bad. I just, it's, I think that it'll be a good topic for uh, another segment in a, in a later podcast, but you know, how you see a build in your mind versus how it actually ends up and how there can be sometimes a rather large difference between those two and then dealing with that. That's kind of what I went through with this. You know, it's, it's not bad per se. It's just not what I wanted, but yeah, you know, they can't all be firecrackers. I mean, I really liked it. I have a soft spot for rhomboids, though. So, oh yeah, they're they're so cool. I don't, <laughs> they're they're great. Uh, that's why I have like four of them in my stash. So this is the first one I finished. So you just got to think, you know, the guys in the trench, you know, they probably had a lot on their minds, but when they saw that rolling across the battlefield, oh, yeah, I can just imagine. Like, WTF? What? What am I drinking? <laughs> what What about the eight guys inside of it? Oh my gosh. With like it, it, two, two little tiny lights and it's loud and filled with smoke and oh, hats off to those guys, man. I don't know how they did that. Yeah. Steel cojones. I'm sure they had air conditioning too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, they for did. sure. <laughs> well, let's go back to uh, completion number five. Uh, you were one of the earliest completers of the of our uh, TIE Fighter group build. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, uh, that build. I was. I, that one I'm actually very happy with. I, I really like how that turned out. I mean, could it be better? Sure. But I say that about everything. It was cool, like working in 148 scale. Granted, it's not, you know, real, but I've never done anything in 148 scale before. So that was really neat. I, I think I was telling you guys, you know, when we had Tony Bell on there and, on our podcast and he was like, oh, you know, I looked around on the internet and you know, there's lots of cool TIE fighters, but, you know, I really, I didn't really see a whole lot finished to a really high level. And I was like, oh, challenge accepted. <laughs> so I did. I took what he said and kind of ran with it. So I went with a black basing style sort of thing with a bunch of different shades of gray underneath the main uh, gray color that I use for early TIE fighters because they kind of I think they changed colors after Star Wars or New Hope, as us youngsters call it, uh, and went to a more like blue gray. And in the first movie, they're like gray, gray, like all, like a very light, almost white gray. Um, I don't go that light with mine, but um, it's it's a little more neutral. It's got it's a little cool, and um, yeah. So I did like black basing with different tones of gray underneath, and you know, tied it all together with the the neutral gray outside. And yeah, I was pretty happy with it. Um, the stand still isn't done even now, but the the model's done. So I don't know what to do with the stand. So I'm still making up my mind. But yeah, the model's done. Turned out really good. I was really happy with it, and. I got to be uh, one of the first people done in the, the group build. So I was pretty happy about that. Yeah. The paragraphics uh, photo etch updates you did to it really turned out great under a coat of paint as well. They did. I, you know, I was <laughs> kind of kicking myself cause I'm like, why am I cutting all of this detail off to just glue more crap back on that? No one really cares about, but uh, after the paint and uh, like a wash and everything. Yeah. I, I think it was, I don't know if it was worth it cause I would have been done like a week before that, but, I was happy. I'm not going to lie. I, I re I'm really proud of that model. I mean, it's not, it's a TIE fighter, so it's not some amazing, you know, complex thing, but you know, it looks really cool in my cabinet, especially next to the fine molds, 172nd scale 
version, which I'd use the same markings. So I have like the the baby version and then the big version. I think the additional size of that 48 scale one really looks really looks neat. It gives it some uh, some uh, what's the word? It gives it some weight. And if you guys are interested, you can join our TIE Fighter group build. We're up over, I think we're about 75 members in that right now. You can build any TIE Fighter by any manufacturer. So take a look at that, the Plastic Posse podcast TIE Fighter group build. And uh, you can join in there. There's some really great work going on there. There's some guys doing 3D printing. There's some guys doing some kind of higher end resin conversions. And then a lot of guys just doing, you know, Bandai and fold fine mold stuff. So pretty good broad spectrum. JB, we've kind of already talked a little bit about your uh, sub, but what else has been going on over there on uh, on your bench? You know, I have a couple Mojo Busters, but I have a lot of things lined up for paint. Uh, my wife's actually going out of town this next week. She's going back home. So these late nights, I'll be all alone at the bench. So I hope to get a lot of painting done. One of the projects I have is actually uh, a gift from one of our listeners and a good friend of mine, Aaron uh, Cook from Columbus, Ohio. He posted several builds on the Scale Modelers Critique Group and offered them up to to the group as, hey, you know, I'm a 48 scale guy. These 35th scale kits have been sitting around. They're almost ready for primer. Is, is anybody open to them? And actually, the one I got was in primer. So I took this VK something or another. It's a German odd looking vehicle. And then JC Osborne, who we had on the show previously, uh, took the T34 and finished it. So I, I've gotten it cleaned up. I did a little bit of polishing on the uh, on the primer and I have a set of tracks coming from China. But I hope to be painting that this weekend. I'm using Adam Wilder's E75 as pure inspiration. And to be honest, I'm going to copy his scheme because it's awesome. It's an older build of Adam. So if, if you're familiar with AFE Modeler, if you go back to uh, issue 67, it's right on the cover. Uh, it's E75. It's a beast. And it's from, you know, 2012. So it's a, a little older, but I mean, older as in, you know, you have to look back at the issue. But in terms of finish, it, it it's as modern as it comes. I mean, he's it, it just really shows how forward he is uh, in his techniques. And going just back to the build, uh, it's, you know, a bit of modulated panzer yellow with some large uh, vertical stripes on it. So I'm, I'm super, super excited to get to that and, uh, you know, push the limits with the modulation. That's a great build that Adam did. And I'm looking forward to seeing your interpretation of that. All right. Well, speaking of group builds, um, the T3485 group build continues to grow. A few more new members in there. And I wanted to give a shout out to our buddy Patrick Brown, who just Brought his T3485 across the finish line. It looks like he uh, chose a Korean scheme for his uh, that was, and it was uh, in captured markings. Uh, it looks like some Marines captured uh, this T3485 and painted over the existing markings. So that's a really nice uh, completion. Did you guys see that? I did. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. What I'm most impressed about is is the markings, you know, courtesy of Fox Company, 25th Division. Did he hand paint those or mask? Regardless, they look really good. Yeah, they look they I mean they look like what they're meant to look like, which is, you know, kind of overpainted with a brush, but he pulled it off really well. It looks terrific in scale. So nice job, Patrick. Yeah, one of the other guys I'd like to give a shout out to from the group. I've been following his work. Because he's again, he's just doing a great job on the kit. Uh, Hendrik, Hendrik, he is, I believe, he's German, but he is 
first off, I think he was talking about this is one of his first models. His construction, he's adding aftermarket. His painting is really well done. I love the green tone on it. He's got the standard, like, large stripe around the turret, characteristic of those vehicles around the Berlin sector at the end of the war. But he recently posted, and this is just from four hours ago today on the 25th of February, a, a photograph of his light that he painted. So within the kit, they only give you the cover. They don't give you clear parts, which is rather unfortunate. And that's probably one of my biggest critiques of the kit. But what he did was he painted it in a style that war gamers, you know, Warhammer or war gamers do where they bring that false sense of light in, that false sense of shimmer. And it looks it looks great. So I, I, I just got to give him a shout out for that. The paint chipping that he did on it was really, really terrific. I mean, he looks he looks like a guy that's built a hundred model tanks, not you know just a couple. As far as my T thirty four eighty five goes, I still continue to make progress here and there. Got mine uh, finally chipped uh, with some help and encouragement from TJ and from JB especially. He's been very patient with me, but we got some chipping done. Going to be doing some more filters and starting on dust effects and streaking. It's getting closer. So that's really cool. TJ, how's your T-34 coming along? Uh, It's limping along, but it is getting there. I've been working on it a little bit yesterday. Didn't really have a chance to do um, anything today. I think I'm almost ready to assemble the tracks. I got to figure out what to do with the the toolboxes. I have the photo etch fret. Um, I built one of the toolboxes out of photo etch. It's kind of a pain in the butt. And of course, it's kind of crooked, which I could fix because I can just, you know, take the super glue apart. But I'm hoping this weekend I can um, maybe get some primer on it. I know I said that last time and it didn't happen. So, um, you know, I'm pulling for it today. So we'll see. You know, speaking of T-3485s, JB, I think you had kind of mentioned at, at one point maybe grabbing one of those new Tamiya 148-scale T-3485s as uh, a little bit of a, a slammer build. Did you ever d- do that? And and what is a slammer build? Talk to us about that. Yeah, so uh, about the T-3485, I have not gotten one yet because none are none are in the United States. I'm anxiously waiting for them to be in stock at Andy's HHQ.com. That's I, every day I check with Patrick and, oh, it's coming, man, it's coming. But, you know, what I've heard is there's some significant delays in shipments, especially with Tamiya. So I'm, I'm just anxiously awaiting that. I know some of our friends have gotten them because they ordered them direct from Hobby Link Japan. But I am anxiously awaiting that kit to hit the, uh, hit the United States. I will be one of the first to purchase several of them. And I have some schemes already lined up to to rock it. And that is would be a slammer build and, you know, brings us to an interesting topic. As modelers, we like to, you know, get very involved with our projects to a fault sometimes. Clear example of that right now for me is the U9. It's it's a fantastic kit. But what I'm finding is it's a very laborious and almost mojo busting kit. And, And what do I mean by that is that you know, it's, it's a rather large palette. The construction was extremely fast and I got to painting and I was going to go quick on painting, but as I was painting it, I started to see some things I liked and I didn't want to rush it, started to think more about it. And now I'm just very, I guess I'm very methodical when it comes to finishing this. And with that nature, it slows the build down. It really, you know, slows the hobby down for some people. And this is where I like to bring in slammer builds. You know, a slammer build is an easy to build kit that you're looking to finish construction, you know, possibly one to two nights. 
You're not looking for some complex dragon kit that has 5,672 parts. <laughs> you literally <laughs> want the shake and bake Tamiya. You want something that's tried, true, and tested, and it's going to be above all fun. You don't want to spend more than eight to 10 hours on construction. And some people will be like, wow, that's like nothing. Well, even that's long. Some of my slammer builds, I, I try to honestly almost build in an evening. Um, I take shortcuts. I don't sand the seams on the rear road wheels or glue all the tracks in place. Don't bother filling injection marks on the bottom side of the, the fender. So shortcuts like that can really matter when it comes to you know getting in your groove, finding momentum, and carrying something to the finish line. And then with these slammer builds, you can you can focus on painting. And you can, you know, maybe try a new technique, but the key point is not to overthink it. Just do it. I mean, straight up Nike advertising, just do it because it, it, the most important thing at the end of the day is finishing the model and you want to drive to that end. And the goal would be a short time. Maybe you start the kit Friday night and by Sunday evening, you're almost finished with the entire model. And you might be saying, John, well, you have to wait for paint to dry. You have to wait for things to cure. It is true to a sense, but you'd be surprised. That might be some dogma in the hobby right there that you're confronting. An example would be, I had to paint this interior of a kit uh, and I wanted to get it done very quickly. I painted it in acrylics and within five to 10 minutes, I was immediately giving it a wash of enamels. People you know, would, would gasp and say, oh, it's, it's gonna strip the paint. You need to let it cure for 24 hours. Yes, that is advised, but sometimes I just wanna press and knock on wood. It, you know, it worked out. I was able to finish it. So at the end of the day, it, a slammer build is something quick, something fun, and get you back on track. I think TJ's probably had like six slammer builds in the last six <laughs> week. <laughs> He's got the production more than like the Ford Motor Plant for crying out loud. <laughs> it's just about removing those crippling projects from your bench, bringing in, you know, a, a fresh slice of you know, the hobby and just, and just moving through it and get, and getting something to the end. And it's, it's just important to find that sense of completion. And if you're curious about a slammer kit, some suggestions would be, you know, from an armor perspective, anything from the Tamiya 148 scale line, these kits are beyond easy to build. You could have them done in a matter of hours and even in an evening for that matter. Aircraft along the same lines, Tamiya's 72nd scale line, the, the beautiful, F-109 that Jeremy Moore just built, prime example, or their Spitfire, or even some of their 148 scale kits. Auto, I'm not the best auto modeler. I think I've built one. It seems like some of the newer AMT stuff is nice. And then for sci-fi, you know, looking at the speed in which some of our group members are building at, uh, the Bandai Star Wars kits are, are prime. So at the end of the day, a slammer build is, is just to kind of reset your modeling mojo and get you to put something in that display case. I agree with that. And another one I'd add to your list of mojo boosting builds are those little uh, tune tanks. For one thing, you're not going to finish a tune tank in the same way that you might finish a serious quote unquote 35th scale build. You're going to have some fun with it and you're going to put a, a finish on it that's appropriate for a, you know, a caricature. So those are a lot of fun and you can knock those out in a weekend as well. Definitely agree. I've done that as well. Yeah. Tune tanks are awesome. I'll die on that hill. I don't care. They're I'll, great. Be there, I'll be right there with you. <laughs> I mean, they they get crapped on, and I don't care. They're fun and and they're they're cool. Like I don't know. I think they're cute too. So I mean, whatever. <laughs> 
What about like a space marine? TJ, is that a good uh, mojo mojo booster? I mean, I would say so. It really, just like painting anything different, I think can can really help with um with mojo. And and I agree with uh, John with uh, Tamiya one forty eight scale tanks. Uh, I've done one. I did the T fifty five last year, and it was great. And I I think I built that in one evening. Like it literally fell together. I, I've never built anything like that. It was like I don't know. It was something else. And, and they're just neat, you know. And you can hold it in the palm of your hand, and but it's got great detail, you know. They're they're fun. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite builds that you've done. You put a really unusual paint job on it, and and you know not the usual Russian green. And love the way it turned out too. So <laughs> Thank it you. looks really good. Yeah, and just going off of you know finishing a you know finishing a slammer build, they hold up in competitions as well. New people, I guess you could say, to competitions like, oh, I have to use aftermarket and this and that. No, I built straight out of the box. Take it to a show. You'd be surprised what you get. They're, they're just a lot of fun. And, and like you said, TJ, I really liked it. Was It was the white one, right? The D55 that you made. Yeah, the African Union. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was that was pretty dope. Thanks. You know, the concept of slammer builds, I think that's somebody everybody can relate to. So hopefully uh, some of the listeners out there uh, think about that and maybe give that a try. Yeah. If, if you've done one, share pictures with it a bit with us on our Facebook page and uh, show them to us, you know, let us know what you're, what you consider a slammer build. Maybe uh, we can coordinate a slammer build one of these times, you know, the old club I belong to right field scale modelers, we would have an annual retreat. And one of the, one of the weekends we did it, we did a 48 and 48. So 48 scale armor kit and 48 hours. You start with the kit. And at the end of that 48 hours, you need to have a finished model. Finished, painted, weathered, all all done. So may, maybe we can coordinate something. That'd be cool. It's not 48 scale, but to me has retooled their little Ketten craft rod. And it uh, looks like quite a neat little kit, but that might be one of those kits that if you sat down and uh, dove into it, you could probably get hammered out in a in a single weekend. So Yeah, that's a that's a great example. I actually just watched because of you. Andy's new video where he did a preview on it today. And like you said, Scott, I think there's what, three or four sprues there. You could easily build it in what, maybe an hour, maybe two. Yep. It's got a couple pieces of photo etch. It's actually got a complete engine. It's got individual track blocks, but in spite of all those, it's such a small subject that yeah, one to two hours, you're probably through it. And then you can get on to paint. I was just going to mention you know, TJ can join us as well because there's several photographs of captured Kettencroft rods that I think would strike his fancy. Yeah, I am a big fan of captured vehicles. I love it. I'm I'm actually thinking of doing one of them, and I guess what you would call a science fiction scheme. There is a charming little anime series called Girls Last Tour about two uh, young girls who are the only survivors basically of a kind of post-apocalyptic war on a different planet and they their only companion through most of the show is a little ket and craft rat that's what they kind of get around on it's kind of a a unique little anime but if you enjoy that kind of thing you might want to check it out it's a fun fun show well we are missing our good friend doug he had some things he had to get taken care of tonight but you will hear him later in the episode on our round table so it falls to the three of us to uh, go through our uh, listener feedback. Our first feedback is from Eric Curvina, and he was talking about how in episode 14, when we were having the discussion of, that we got from a listener about the different feel of the armor and aircraft 
communities. And he was kind of wondering if maybe that comes down to the differences in judging between the IPMS judging standards and the AMPS judging standards, where instead of just a first, second, and third with IPMS, you're getting gold, silver, and bronze. And sometimes there can be more than one gold in one category. John, I know you've got a lot of experience judging in these competitions. What do you think about that? Yeah, Eric hits on a really important topic, I think. And I'd love to you know, spend a whole episode talking about this, but he, he brings up a very good point where I find AMS judging very, very much more supportive, where you're looking to add points to a build. You're looking to build that modeler up to a final score where, you know, when you, it's it's a shame when you're at an IPMS show, they're looking at things to detract from the model immediately. Oh, there's a seam. Okay, boom. I can discount it and move on where amps, it's kind of that opposite approach. And it's just the nature of judging, as you mentioned, one, two, three versus the open system, gold, silver, bronze. Eric does uh, finish up and, and sort of a, sort of a little bit of a friendly disagreement. I think that John Bryan was the one who gave us the feedback, but he said, by the way, I want to be clear that every sub-community in the hobby that I have encountered has been friendly and welcoming, regardless of the values they focus on. Thanks for the time and effort you put into making my life more fun. Uh, thanks for the feedback, Eric. I think I mentioned before, I know Eric. Uh, we met at our local IPMS chapter, which is IPMS Nova. He's a fellow sci-fi guy and uh, also armor. So yeah, thanks, Eric. We also got some feedback from Jeremy Moore, who said he listened to the podcast for the first time today and he loved it. So I appreciate that, uh, Jeremy. We got some feedback from Robert Abercrombie that he's let us know that he also loves the podcast. We have some feedback from Lynn Geisler. Hopefully I didn't butcher your last name. He let us know that he found a new shop near him called HQ Hobbies in Milford, Connecticut, and it's packed with kits, aftermarket, and paints. And apparently we made him buy another tank and we're rubbing off on him. So that's that's good. You're trending in the right direction. <laughs> good on you, Lynn. <laughs> Listener David Brian Bridges let us know that he really appreciated our conversation with Tony Bell. Thought it was a great episode. So thank you. Yeah, we'd like to thank Clinton for writing in. That was a enjoyable show and very informative. Listen, thanks, fellas. No, thank you, Clinton. Uh, another one from Ray. Great prod. Great podcast. Love the comparisons between aircraft and armor building approaches and dogma. Thanks, Ray. John Bryan wrote in. Thanks so much for reading out my post on the last episode. Definitely made my run more enjoyable. I probably shouldn't write out of the influence of alcohol, though. Oh, no worries, man. It happens to the best of us. However, he was, you know, he was really glad Doug got his name correct. No one does that on the first time. So thanks a lot, Doug, he says. And then great, a great episode as always. Really enjoyed Tony Bell and look forward to the next podcast. So, hey, thanks a lot, John. Really appreciate the feedback. Um, the next is from Joe Porsche, you know, good friend and, and a really great guy when it comes to the upcoming nationals. He's a, he's a major part of that and he's always promoting the, the show on social media. So hopefully, you know, it, it goes off without a hitch. His, his comments are, thanks for the kind words. Uh, good thing I'm feeling better now and back at the bench working on the 2021 Nats and the occasional model project. I completely understand how that goes, Joe. He does uh, He does have to start the TIE Fighter, he says, and he has to complete his uh, T-34 diorama. So that'll be that'll be exciting. As always, thanks for giving a shout out to the, to the Nats. He really appreciates it and helping out the San Diego folks as well. So thanks a lot, Joe. Yeah, thanks a lot, Joe. Glad you're feeling better too. Mark Box says, wow, as somebody who is interested in not just the build, but how the subject is presented to the viewer, either in photos or in person, I really enjoyed Mike Rinaldi's presentation on your podcast. It was such an inspiration 
and I will continue to pursue these skills. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Mark. Robert Burnside uh, wrote in and said, just listen to your podcast for the first time. And you guys have a good thing going. He said he's actually known Mike Rinaldi for a number of years and has some of his Panzer art books. He's also a big fan of JB. So JB's still paying his friends to write in, <laughs> write in the feedback. I mean, dude, you got the gig. I mean, seriously. Just <laughs> Anyway, he also uh, says he's a huge Bruins fan. So he loves it when we uh, give hockey shout outs, being that he's uh, from Boston. He also uh, is passing our podcast along to some of his local model, model buddies up in the Boston area. So anyway, thanks a lot, Robert. Appreciate you uh, writing in. Uh, we got another message from Jonathan Borman, and he wanted to let us know that we've uh, kind of brainwashed him with all the sci-fi talk, and he's ordered a Snowspeeder, a TIE Fighter, an ATST, and he even hasn't even watched a single Star Wars movie in his life. <laughs> so go ahead and do that. And then you'll probably like those things even more. And they also let us know that he blocked Machine and Krieger as a search word. So he doesn't end up going down that rabbit hole as well. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say, don't do that. And uh, go get a Machine and Krieger kit and have fun building uh, sci-fi nonsense. Because it is good fun. And then uh, Clayton Ockerby wrote in to let us know that uh, he was enjoying listening to the show. And to tell us to keep up the great work. So thanks, Clayton. Hey, thank you, Clayton. I, I just want to give out. Uh, sh I just want to give a shout out to Clayton. Fantastic modeler. He's featured on the modeling news a lot and in some of the publications. So appreciate the kind words, Clayton, and, and keep up the great work. All right. Well, that was a lot of feedback. So uh, we're definitely missing Doug right about now. But if you guys want to send us your comments, we'd love to hear your feedback, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Although we kind of like the good stuff the best, but it, it, whatever your uh, whatever your flavor is, we'll take it. If you want to give us your feedback, uh, TJ, how do they how do they get in touch with the Plastic Posse? If you want to leave feedback, you can find us over on Facebook at Plastic Posse Podcast and also on Instagram at Plastic Posse Podcast. I know that's really original, right? Then you can also email us at Plastic Posse Podcast at gmail.com. Now it's time for our main segment. This is where Doug and TJ host our special guests. We have three great ones today. As mentioned previously, we have John Bias, Enrique from Race for Terra, and Rick Baker to discuss Star Wars modeling in our second roundtable discussion. Take it away, gents. Welcome to all of you to our second Plastic Posse Podcast Roundtable Discussion. This time out, we're going to dive into Star Wars modeling, and we have an awesome panel of guests today. Let me introduce you guys to our listeners. First of all, we have Enrique Perriam. He has an awesome YouTube channel called The Race for Terra with over 50 videos. He really is a pioneer in bringing traditional weathering methods to non-traditional subjects like wargaming minis and Star Wars models. Enrique, welcome to the panel. Thank you very much, and thank you for kind words. Nice to, to be here again. It's awesome to have you again. We, we had a lot of fun the first time. We also have John Bias. He's also another awesome friend of the podcast. He's another awesome YouTuber. It's called John Bias Scale Modeling. He's got over 100 videos over there. He's got the full spectrum from in-process builds to technique-specific builds to just sometimes, you know, some philosophy and, and support type videos, which we love. 
And uh, some of those videos include, oddly enough, Star Wars subjects. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. I am deeply grateful. We've got a special guest today sitting in the fifth chair, Rick Baker. He's a longtime friend and supporter of the Plastic Posse podcast. And he's an even longer time Star Wars and Star Wars modeling enthusiast. Rick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And of course, from the Posse, you guys know these two. We've got TJ Holler. He's a terrific modeler. He paints war game minis, armor modelers, and even sometimes Star Wars kits. You can see a lot of TJ's builds over at his Orion Paintwork. He's got a website, Facebook page, and an Instagram account. And of course, you can see it on our Plastic Posse podcast uh, Facebook page as well. And he just finished a really awesome Fine Molds 148 scale tie that you can see over in our TIE Fighter group build. TJ, welcome to the panel. Uh, I would thank you, but I had to be here. So, And then, of course, uh, Doug Smith, he's our Star Wars passion guy. He's a longtime modeler. His primary interest seems to be um, Star Wars modeling. Uh, Doug also models aircraft. He does one-to-one scale basements, wargaming minis, and recently I think he even built a Gundam. You can see a lot of Doug's great models again on our uh, Facebook page. Doug, welcome to the panel. Thank you, but don't look for me on YouTube or anything. I don't have any special pages. I just, I just do me. You're, you're Doug, and I'm, you built, you built Star Wars kits, build models. <laughs> all right. Well, welcome to all of you, and uh, let's get started. So, for my first question here, I'm going to start out with a question for uh, Rick, and then after uh, Rick answers, we'll just kind of go around the room. So, Rick, especially from a modeling perspective, my first question for you is this. Why Star Wars? Why this particular property over other science fiction properties or even modeling genres? Well, that brings up a kind of a larger subject in that uh, I personally believe that when you hit a, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain age, there's a sweet spot for finding a passion. And Star Wars managed to to hit just right for me. I was six when it came out, but you know, my, that passed my birthday passed before I was able to see it. So I was actually seven before I saw it. You know, I'm right in that, uh, that original trilogy era that, uh, it just, I was the right age. It was the right thing. And it, you know, I, I came out of the, the theater with my brain just melted. It ticked all the boxes for me. It was everything that that I wanted out of uh, entertainment, and it's you know it's pretty much been my thing since. Well, kind of following on to that, I was ten when it came out. I went into the theater. I had heard everybody talking about it, but I'd managed to avoid too many spoilers. I, I went in with my expectations being set by all of the other previous sci-fi stuff I had seen, which was mostly Star Trek, Ultraman, guys in monster suits, and that kind of thing. So I was totally not expecting Star Wars. And when I walked in and saw that movie, it blew me away. I mean, in a way that no other movie really has. I remember being in tears watching it, not because of, you know, Obi-Wan died or, you know, something like that, but just watching it and going, this is what I want. This this is it. This is the best thing I've ever seen. And quite honestly, in all the years since then, 
it's it's not changed. And you know, I'm all about in my modeling making ten year old John happy. And when when I can build something from Star Wars, that's getting right to the heart of ten year old John being that kid and looking at you know almost if you could imagine ten year old John watching over my shoulder and going, "You're building an X wing. That is the coolest thing ever, dude." And so it's I. I I'm getting excited about it now. I want to I want to go build something right now. It's just nothing else has had that kind of effect on me. I mean, to answer your question, why not Star Wars? I mean, it's the best. I mean, that's that's really all I can say about it. I mean, you know, it being almost 40, obviously I missed the you know, I wasn't born in 1977, so obviously I missed that. I didn't watch it until probably like sixth grade. So like early nineties, mid nineties around there. Yeah. Early nineties. So I don't know. I mean, I just, I fell in love with it and it's, it's awesome. I mean, I don't, there's a reason why the movies have been so successful and have made so much money. And 40 plus years later, it's still part of pop culture. I mean, it, it's just, it's just cool. Well, I'd like to echo what John said, but I couldn't possibly be as eloquent as, as he was. Uh, I saw the first one when I was three. He also made, made a huge impression on me. And what I remember the, the most is that the following Christmas, I got the Millennium Falcon, uh, like the Kenner model, and like 20 action figures. <laughs> I was a bit pampered as a boy. I guess I'm revisiting that because I only recently have I started like making any Star Wars models. Like the first one was a couple of months ago. Well, I was I was seven. I actually didn't want to see it. My dad made me see it because he he was a sci-fi guy from when he was young, and he was watching the Flash Gordon serials, and and didn't want to go right from the Star Destroyer flying over Tatooine at the very beginning of the first movie. I sat up and didn't move for two hours, and life has not been the same since. I mean, it was it was my life until Girls happened, and now it's still every bit of as as much a part of my life as it was then. I, I build the models. I just I just hung two more Star Wars posters on my model room wall this morning. I still, I mean, it's still my thing, and I sh- love sharing it with anybody I can. So, so this is this is a fun way to do it. Circling back around to Rick talking about the modeling aspect of Star Wars. You know why Star Wars modeling? Obviously, you you have a passion for uh, Star Wars itself, but why the models? I'll go back to something that uh, Enrique talked about in his first appearance, um, verisimilitude. It's the idea for me of taking a model of a fictional thing and trying to make it seem as real as possible. I think that's what differentiates, I think that's why Star Wars and you know science fiction in general appeals to me a little more as I hear, you know, these other podcasts, people talking about how they're in their childhoods, they, they built tanks, they built planes. And that's, you know, recreating something that already exists. Whereas Star Wars, you're taking something that somebody had to think up and imagine and try to make it seem as though it were real. That's an interesting perspective. Enrique, what do you think about that? Well, I'm surprised that Rick knew about um, my, my participation in, in, in that other episode. 
thank you, Rick. And uh, well, I, I cannot, but I agree. Yeah, I think what makes it special for me is that basically Star Wars has always had weathering. So we have a, a model in the sense of an example there to follow. Whereas in, in other science fiction IPs, I don't think that's so prevalent. But in Star Wars, I think it was there from the get-go. I mean, you look at any ship, you look at all the droids, they're all weathered. They all have chipping. They have, like, rust streaks and all the rest of it. So um, I think it's really, really good for, for us modelers to to have that to imitate. Yeah, so I, I think it's much easier to strive for that verisimilitude when you have something like a real life uh, example, but which it isn't. So at the same time, you also have more freedom than you would with, say, a World War II tank. The weathering and aging of the sets and the models is something that really set it apart. I've seen a lot of people say that, you know, really what Star Wars was was a Western set in outer space. John, what do you think about that? Is, is the weathering of the subjects in the movies, was that something that you immediately related to? Well, when I was a kid, you know, and was, I remember I picked up, you remember the green stamps, S&H green stamps? Yep. You'd get those when you go grocery shopping. The first two Star Wars models I got were Darth Vader's TIE fighter and a big plastic Darth Vader. I think it was from AM, AMT or AM, AM, AMC, something like that. MPC. Was that what it was? Yeah, I know it was, I know it was some letters. <laughs> but <laughs> when I was a kid, it was about okay, this is just cool. It's just, it's just Star Wars. It's just cool. I, and, and I remember I, I had my, my snow speeder, you know, that you put the little figures in. I had my figures. I weathered those. I painted those, but it was in a desire to make it look like what was on screen. As I've gotten older and, you know, I, I've only been, I, I, I did aircraft weathering or aircraft for a long time. And when I, when I transitioned to doing nothing but sci-fi, Star Wars immediately appealed to me, again, because of the coolness factor, but because all of the stuff I loved about weathering aircraft, it applied directly to uh, weathering uh, an X-Wing fighter or, you know, the snow speeders or any of those things. So, yeah, the, 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 the weathering of it, the look of it, it's just there's a lot of freedom in it because, you know, you make it up as you go along. If somebody says... You know, that one never appeared that way on screen. You can go, yeah, but this one was in the outer rim and the guy who flew it didn't care about it. And it was at a backwards base that didn't get any kind of, you can just, you can just add to the story. And the more you learn about canon, the more you can, the more you can just, just <laughs> go with it. So it, it offers so many possibilities for imagination. The original uh, movie I saw over 150 times and I lost count after that. Kind of a contest with a friend of mine. But uh, to be honest, when I was seven, I knew they looked great. I knew they looked better than anything I'd ever seen on screen before. But at seven years old, I didn't understand why. I didn't understand the weathering, and I didn't understand Greeblies, and I didn't understand the effort that was put in to make them look like they were used, like they were actually physically used and had been through a lot and are still flying. Or, you know, I didn't understand that. It wasn't until later that I figured that out. But I mean, let's face it, someone mentioned the sci-fi that had come before. And, and if you go back to one year from that point and you've got the movie Logan's Run won the best, the Oscar for best visual effects the year before Star Wars, 
it's some of the, I mean, by today's standards, even by 1977 standards, they're awful. They're bad sets. They're bad visuals. And I mean, the year's difference made such a, it just, what it did for that movie and what they did to develop it all. I don't know. It's just, it's just hard to explain other than I, I just didn't understand what I was seeing other than I loved it. Well, you know, I know we've talked about how, you know, why, like I, I prefer armor modeling as opposed to aircraft modeling. And, and typically, obviously this is not an absolute, but typically aircraft are usually finished cleaner than armor. And I like things that look dirty and used and worn and beaten that, I mean, that's star Wars. That's, that was done that way intentionally. And it makes it more interesting to me, at least, um, you know, I can only speak for myself. I, th- I think that has a lot to do with it. Like it, I, it, you know, if you see something you, it, star Wars has an aesthetic that is instantly recognizable and that translates across everything video games, movies, TV shows, and models. When you see it, it's that Star Wars. And it most of the time it's because it looks old and beat up, futuristic, but also maybe not so much. Well it's it's so relate I mean to 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 riff on what you're talking about, it's so relatable. I mean, yes it's in well technically it's not in the future. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But you know, I, I love Star Trek. But Star Trek in terms of the universe is not really truly relatable. It's aside from the the conflicts they have on the show, if you look at, okay, the life they lead on planet Earth, everybody's happy. There's there's no disease. The the weather's controlled. There's no need for money. You know, you you go. This is this is nice, but it's not believable. You go into Star Trek. I mean, Star Wars. You know, right from the get-go, okay, there's a kid who's out having, essentially, out having to work in his yard, and he doesn't want to work in the yard. He wants to go into town and have fun with his friends, and he goes into town, and there's some sleaze buckets that are messing with him, and there's, I mean, you, you know, you go, okay, this is this is just like when I was a kid. I could relate to it. I didn't want to mow the yard. I wanted to ride into town, and I wanted to go to the Woolworths and pick up some model kits. But I always had to watch out for these kids that were a few years older than me. They would try and keep me from going in and try and take my money. I mean, that's and then, and then the old guy who worked in would come rescue me. It's so relatable. And, and we see these things. And I think because for me, being able to mentally almost live in the universe while I'm doing it, it really speaks to it really informs the way I weather, the way I paint. You know, because I don't just think, okay, I'm just going to put some chips on here, but I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is me getting in and out of this thing. And, you know, I, I'm going to grab my handhold here and I'm going to grab here and that's going to make some marks on it. And, you know, you can just live the adventure as you're building it, or maybe it's just me, but I, I, I really do. I, I literally fly the things around and trying to make the noises and all of that. It, it just invites you into the universe, I think. It's not just you. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, Rick. All right. I've got another question here. I'm going to start, Doug, I'm going to start with you on this one. There's obviously, you know, what, 11 movies now and cartoons and TV shows and comic books and everything else. Which Star Wars designs are you the most partial to? Do you tend to kind of 
prefer the original Ralph McQuarrie designs or other subsequent designs, and why? Ralph McQuarrie was an absolute genius with his designs, but I'd have to go with my my favorites being what I saw on screen, especially in the original trilogy. They were all original. They were all, I mean, they, they didn't look like anything we'd seen before, even though they looked like they should be able to function the way they're designed. The The X-Wings and Y-Wings just always kind of were special to me. And then TIE Fighters were, were definitely unique in their own way. I would, I would have to go with original, original designs from the movies. The original trilogy. Mm-hmm. And, and I like some of what they've done since. But but it seems like what they've done since is almost always based on what they did in the original movie. So so it, it all kind of is tied back in. Although I will say one thing about the weathering and stuff they did, I, I can actually see, although they physically don't look the same, a progression. If you go back to episode one and those Naboo star, starfighters, look at a Century Series jet and then look at, uh, the X-Wings and the Y-Wings and how they're weathered and beat up. And that could be a, a MiG or, or an F-15 or an F-14 that's seen a lot of action. They all kind of, you can kind of see a progression through all of their, uh, their designs, in my opinion. I, I've always kind of seen it that way. If you guys include by the science stuff from, you know, the, the, the Star Wars expanded universe as well, would you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anything. Yep. Then I'd I'd like to go to cast my vote for the Knights of the Old Republic uh, comic books and uh, their aesthetic, which I've always liked. And, you know, that exploration of, of that other yet older era, if you like, of, of Star Wars. And I think it's a, a pity that we don't, we don't have any models except um, 3D printed ones, that is, that, that cover those uh, alternative settings, if you like. Uh, I'm an original trilogy guy. Again, it goes back to that uh, that used look, that weathered look. Uh, when they went to the um, the prequels and everything kind of got glossy and and finished, I understand the the idea behind that. And you know, you can see the aesthetic of uh, you know Art Deco and, and planes from the uh, you know the 30s and uh, as you get into the Clone Wars, they're they're getting into World War II type vehicles, and and there's definitely like like the uh, Republic gunship. I love that thing. You know, it's reminiscent of a, a Vietnam era helicopter. When it comes down to it, it's it's original trilogy stuff for me. Well, I mean, you got to go with original trilogy, right? Um, but I, as cheesy as it sounds, I like all of it. I mean, I, and I honestly do, I like the prequel designs for the most part, you know, obviously not everything. And that, that, that would, you know, go with, with pretty much anything really. I like the sequel trilogy designs. I of course love the original trilogy designs. And, and like Enrique was saying the, the old Republic stuff, I really like too. In particular, I, I used to play star Wars, the old Republic, which was an online game. I think it's still around, but what they did was awesome because they used the star Wars aesthetic and then, but a way to make the players different, you know, appear different um, when you're playing online, like a, a Jedi Knight looked like a, like a knight, but not like a, you know, obviously wearing plate mail, but their armor design made them look like 
a knight, which you know makes sense because they're Jedi knights. And uh, it, it's neat seeing like a an old kind of armor, but obviously Star Wars, and it looks very Star Wars. John, which designs appeal to the ten-year-old John Bias the most? Well, certainly the the original trilogy stuff. I mean, that's that was that was when my mind was young and impressionable, and I could you know just really latched onto those things. But over the years, uh, some of the things that have been talked about already here uh, by the others, like Knights of the Old Republic, I, I played that on the PC, Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic Two, and I just I just loved that game and the designs in that game. But I've really, really been digging the stuff that is part of the Star Wars Legion tabletop game and uh, some of the designs that are coming out in that. And then I'm kind of coming into it late watching Clone Wars and Rebels and stuff like that. And more and more, I really, in terms of modeling, I think I get I'm starting to get more excited about the stuff that covers kind of the Clone Wars up through just before A New Hope, uh, episode four. All of those things that are going on in that, like that U-Wing fighter that featured in in Rogue One. I, I mean, that was that was you could look at it and go, OK, you, you knew it was Star Wars or yeah, Star Wars, but it, it was it was also so different. It was so just, there was so much about it. And then as you look at clones and clone wars and all that, you can see how they all relate. And so kind of that period, I've gotten nerdy enough about it that I start thinking in terms of, I would say the the 20 years before Yavin in that, that the before the battle of Yavin, that period in there just has really hooked me. While we're talking about the expanded universe and all the other all the other things you know around the central movies, Enrique, a uh, question for you: With all of the expanded universe uh, that we have, and all the source materials, and all the movies and everything, why do you think we don't really see a lot of Star Wars related vignettes and dioramas being made? Yeah, that's a tricky question. I can tell you why you don't see any from me, because <laughs> I don't have any experience with making dioramas. As for why other hobbyists don't engage with that, I'm not too sure, to be honest. I think there's plenty, as you said, there's plenty of opportunities and plenty of examples, like, say, the Battle of Ender, to, to name just one. You know, that's an, that is a really, that's a tricky question. Um, I'm not, obviously, there's some out there. I've I've seen a number of them on on Facebook and in social media, but yeah, I, I I don't have a good answer for that. You would think, well, you know, I, I think my some of it might be it it's hard it's hard to find a bunch of models in a consistent scale. The closest we've had is fine molds in a handful of one set their one seventy second scale, and then Bandai with a handful of their one seventy second scale. Yeah, I mean, before that, scale was kind of all over the place. So you, you really couldn't, it was difficult to, you wanted to do a, like a vignette or a diorama with something. It was hard to find what you would need. You know, even, and then even in 172nd scale, if you wanted to make a, a trench run or something, like you, you need a, a pretty nice chunk of real estate to do that. Well, and I'll, I'll draw on, I've had some experience in, in years past with dealing with IPMS contests. Um, helping, helping to manage them, helping to run them, 
helping with the club. And just in overall terms of participation, you tend to see fewer science fiction models represented overall in that setting. I remember you would we would have to do splits because there would be you know, 148 scale allied aircraft, single engine fighters. We had to split it up into three because there were so many of them that came in. But, you know, for things like submarines, (laughs) certain science fiction things, there just weren't that many models represented. And so because it didn't seem to be of the, it wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't of interest because obviously it is, but at what, we tend to think of as American scale modelers, when we think of shows, it's quite often IPMS shows that we're thinking of. And I just haven't seen them represented well there. And so, and I also, as I've gotten more into sci-fi, I've seen that there's, I don't want to say animosity, but it's like two different bubbles. There's the traditional IPMS model contest, and it's not always and traditionally has not been real inviting to sci-fi. And so you, I don't think you see as much there, but also I certainly agree that scale is an issue too, which I think is interesting because as I was talking about earlier, um, Star Wars Legion, the tabletop game, they're roughly, I think, 147 scale. I think if people discover those as models, not necessarily for gaming, you have vehicles, you have characters, you have all sorts of things that could be used for some really great dioramas. I mean, they've got the the the, the bunker thing that was used in episode six that, you know, uh, they were trying to get inside of to turn off the, 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 the shield thing. Uh, you've got you've got all of the main characters. You've got all of the, the vehicles that have been flying along the ground. Um, so I think that if people discover that, and as I see sci-fi growing in the IPMS world, I think hopefully we'll see that that increase. But I think it's I think there's a whole lot of layers to that onion. Well, I couldn't agree more with what John said uh, about Star Wars Legion. Uh, I totally second that, <laughs> John. The the only Star Wars models I've done to date, namely an ATST and a TX two twenty five tank were both uh, Star Wars Legion models, in fact, not scale models as such. Uh, you could say that I painted them as scale models and I weathered them heavily, um, you know, using like military modeling techniques, if you like. Um, and I was, I was really impressed by the quality of the models. And it's just mind-blowing how simple they are to build, which, you know, for some might be a detriment, but for me, it's a huge benefit because, you know, the tank I literally built in 10 minutes and then it was you know, time to airbrush and then get weathering. For me, that's a, a huge, it's a boon, basically a, a blessing. And they're really well made. Price-wise, they're okay. Um, yeah, I would recommend, recommend them to anyone who, like me, is not so much into the building side of things and just prefers to get painting and weathering as soon as possible. That's, a, that's an interesting perspective. That, that's good. Uh, you know what? I, it's not something I've ever put a lot of thought into. Personally, I, I'm not really a diorama guy. Um, it's not that I'm not interested. I just never uh, had the the desire to expand on that side. I like to build my kits and then 
set them down and, and start the next one. Um, so honestly, I just have to defer to everybody else and what they've had to say. I am not really experienced with, uh, competitions and things. So I can't really speak to why you don't see very many there, but I think TJ hit on something where prior to say the last 10, 15 years, and certainly with Bandai, um, scale really was an issue. You know, that I, I loathe box scale. I can not tell you how much I hate it because you couldn't display your TIE fighter next to your A-wing because they were you know, completely different. Uh, scales. And now that there is a certain amount of consistent scale, and certainly with the 1 144th stuff, I think there is a possibility that you could start seeing more of those things. Like I, I mentioned it in one of my previous emails that I have a idea for a diorama with uh, 1 144th TIE fighters that in order to complete it and, and build it the way I would like to do it, it would literally take up an entire bookshelf, but it would be really amazing. So yeah, I think that's it's possible that, that you could start seeing more of that. It's certainly some of the smaller scales that, that allow a, a larger scale diagram to happen. I'm going to kind of mix, uh, mix things up a little bit here. Rick actually was the one that kind of brought this to the attention um, of the posse. But Round 2 has recently announced that they've acquired the license to start making the older MPC AMT Ertl kits. And they also plan on upgrading the tooling in many of these as well as making new kits. So some of those are, you know, they had Hoth dioramas, they had a, a Dagobah diorama. I'm going to start with Doug. Doug, which one of these reissued kits are you going to be uh, looking forward to the most? That is a good question. There were actually quite a few that I that I enjoyed as a kid. Um, maybe maybe something as simple as their tie interceptor was actually a very good kit, even though the Bandai one exceeds that one in just about every way. Um, I really liked that little interceptor kit, um, and maybe maybe even going to something huge like their uh, Tidarium which would be, uh, it was a bear to put together. It was really hard to get those folding wings to actually stay put because the fuselage would, would crack apart right there. It just wasn't manufactured well. And if they can do something, reissue that and do something about that strengthening that joint, that one would be a lot of fun. It was a big, big uh, model. Well, I don't feel I'm qualified to answer that question because those kits all predate me. Um, modeling and a lot of them probably predate me in life if uh <laughs> <laughs> so i'm pretty i'm pretty young but um yeah I, I mean i've seen a couple of them i know the shuttle exists um and i love the shuttle um so i guess if i if gun to the head if i had to pick one i'd say the shuttle as long as it's not they can fix it so it's not as bad as doug makes it sound because it sounds miserable and uh <laughs> I'm an impatient builder and I don't like difficult builds. Yeah, he, he's right. He's definitely right about that. Uh, Rick, what about you? Oh, all the good ones are taken already. Uh, uh, actually, um, one I, I pretty much went through all those old kits. I had them when they were original, including all the action scenes and things like that. And, um, you know, lost them and, once I uh, 
you know, grew up, they, they all kind of went away and I'm not sure exactly what happened to them all. But then when they started reissuing them in the, the late nineties and early two thousands, I basically reacquired all of those. But the ones that I am missing that I have not reacquired that I hope round two, uh, does is the old original, uh, one, I think it was one eighth scale or one ninth scale, uh, C3PO and R2D2. I'd like to see those, uh, with some improvements, but, uh, Enrique, do you have a desire to build any of those old kind of legacy Star Wars kits? Uh, not in their current form. I, I actually looked on eBay at an AMT TIE Fighter a few weeks ago, and then I, I thought the better of it because I read that they were a bit difficult. I'm currently working on a Bandai TIE Fighter with my son and also an Imperial Stormtrooper and uh you know, like, like I said before, I like models that are quick and easy to build. And I, I'm really enjoying the, the TIE Fighter. Problem is, it's a bit too small. So if, if there was a, for my taste at least, at least if there was a, uh, say, 148 scale or something like that, TIE Fighter or a TIE Interceptor, even better, I think I, w- I would try and get that, yeah. There in Germany, you should be able to find the Ravel boxing of the fine molds TIE fighter in 148 scale. And it, it'll say right on the box that it's a fine molds kit. And uh, it's really good. TJ just finished that fine molds 148 scale TIE fighter in our group build over on our podcast page. And it looks really, really terrific. I've seen it. Yeah. But it, that's uh Ravel. Yeah. Ravel's reboxing the fine molds kit. Huh? I didn't know that. Thank you. All right, 10-year-old John, I know you've got an opinion on this. I, I have been sitting here going, ask me, ask me, ask me. Because, I mean, you know, I would love any of those kits, but I'm the, my favorite, oh, I mean, I'm getting excited even thinking about it, that Hoth battle scene. <laughs> It, it it was one of those it was one of those that had the the vacuum form kind of ground thing with all the trenches in it and it had those power generators that you know were sitting off like a couple of discuses sitting up on their side and it came with if I remember right it came with at least one at at walk and I think there was a snow speeder and, and lots and lots of little soldiers and things and you could put them wherever you wanted there were some turrets I've still got somewhere. In my box of toys from when I was a kid, I've still got one of the turrets from that set. And I played with that thing over and over and over again. I want that one. All the others are cool too. I'll look at those, but I want that one. Because when I replayed that battle, the Empire lost every time. I rewrote <laughs> I rewrote the whole storyline because I'm like, I am not playing this and having... The rebels lose. I'm just not doing it. So yeah, that that Hoth battle scene, that for me, that was it. The box art on that alone sold that for me. Wow, how do you follow that up, huh? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, ten year old John. Yeah, so. yeah, he's having a field day today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got a question. Um, it's actually TJ's question, so I'm going to start with him on this. So TJ. Do you finish your models as the movie props or filming miniatures where you don't put any glass in in the cockpit, etc.? So as ILM would have made them, or do you model your your Star Wars kits as if they were actual, um, quote-unquote, real-world subjects in the realm of the property? 
I am so glad you included this question. Uh, I got happy when I saw it um, on the on our little uh, you know ideas document. I, I think I've made it abundantly clear in previous episodes. I do not care about the studio models. Uh, I, not that they're they're great. Don't get me wrong, but if I've seen them and I've seen pictures of them, they're kind of ugly, you know, and I don't really think that's a, a matter of, of debate. You know, they were not finished to a high standard because in 1977, we didn't have 4k digital cameras, so they didn't have to be. And that, and that's fine. I appreciate them for what they are. And I think they're, they're wonderful and the creativity in making and painting them is in my opinion, been unsurpassed in filming miniatures. But me personally, I like to make my star Wars models models of the real thing. And I think I've, I've probably mentioned that more than once on the podcast. I don't, you know, I don't disparage guys that are, you know, slavishly devoted to rebuilding the studio scale models, both in studio scale and, like the smaller versions, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in everyone can enjoy this hobby how they want. But me personally, I have no time for that. I don't care enough. Like I don't need to find the perfect stormy sea blue to paint my TIE fighter. I paint them the color I like and that's fine. And, but if someone wants to like, I mean, more power to you and I, I hope they're successful and, and I appreciate that. I've seen some really good, replicas of the filming miniatures that are really impressive it's just not for me does that answer the question scott <laughs> yes it does <laughs> and enrique put your future uh star wars modeling hat on for me for a minute which side <laughs> of this debate would you come down on how would you finish uh say an x-wing or a tie fighter for me there's no debate uh i agree with tj 100 percent. i respect all opinions, of course, but um, until I listened to one of your earlier episodes talking about this, actually, uh, it would never have occurred to me that this could even be a debate. Like, why the controversy? To my mind, um, there's no, there's no point. Sorry, in replicating the studio models. What we, what I would like to replicate is that you know very similitude, even if it's from a fictional universe, but trying and, and make it seem as if it were. A real object in that setting, not replicate um, the studio models that were only made with a purpose to, to, to make the film, right? Rick, are you going to put a, a tick mark in the column for uh, studio miniatures, or are you also uh, kind of a real-world subject kind of a guy? Well, I'm going to go with a, with a blend. So I am not by any means somebody who would like to uh, try to faithfully recreate a, uh, uh, a studio model. I think that, that sounds like a, uh, a headache waiting to happen. And, but I'll uh, kind of bandwagon on what uh, John said earlier is I, I want to put myself in that, you know, as I'm building it, I'm thinking about, you know, what, what kind of paint scheme would I do? You know, but I also have to blend it with I, I want to be, you know, faithful to the the source material. But I guess maybe the, the way to look at it is I want to put my mark on it. What's what would my personal 
experience in that universe look like? I want to circle back and, and agree with Rick. I, I do do. I kind of made it seem like I don't care that I really didn't care like at all about the studio models. That that's not entirely true. That's a little bit of an exaggeration on my part. I I will look at the studio models and take inspiration from them. So if I do uh, a red five X wing, you know, if anyone that has seen the studio model knows there's a very distinctive, I get, it looks like blaster marks on the one wing. I think it's the top port wing. I can't S foil. I'm sorry. Hopefully I don't piss the nerds <laughs> off. <laughs> there's a very distinctive, like uh black scoring. It looks like maybe it was like a couple blaster hits. I will add that to my, x-wing every time if i do red five that has it on there i just make mine look similar and i don't i I don't care if it's not perfect or he's got the exact pattern like some people do and and again that's that's cool if you're into that that's just not what i do hopefully that makes sense well i'm gonna i'm probably gonna come in with kind of a politician's answer um, that I'll, I'll just try and please everybody, but I, I have to look at it from, for me, modeling is artistic expression and what, when I'm building star Wars and to even narrow it down even more, when I'm building star Wars and thinking, how will I present this as a video? Because I think it's, it's more than just, okay, here's a video of me doing work. But here's, I feel like my, my purpose needs to be to be helpful, but still have fun with it. So there is, when you evaluate the, the original studio stuff, it wasn't done to win contests or to look like this super fantastic model. It was done to look convincing for about a quarter of a second before it goes cartwheeling across the Death Star in a fireball. So, and there were a lot of decisions, as I understand it, that were made for filming reasons to make stuff show up um, so that when they had the full scale replicas that the actors would climb into that would correlate to what was flying around on screen so that you could identify that this was this one or that was that one in some way. When, when I want to try and do something that is studio modeling style. I don't try and replicate studio modeling, but rather what was the perceived look on screen? Like, you know, it, it, it wasn't until about four years ago that I realized that the X-Wing fighter in Star Wars looked like it was painted by a lady's quilting bee. Because, you know, if when I remembered the movie as a kid, if you'd have said, what color is an X-Wing fighter? I'd have said, ah, it's white with red on it, right? But it's it's white with red and buff and blue and gray and, you know, 40 different colors in between. And the same way with with weathering them and the chipping and things like that, there was, there was a style, there was an aesthetic that was done for, for specific screen reasons. But I, when I want to do it that way, I say, okay, I'm not going to try and necessarily replicate exactly what's on screen, but what is perceived that we see on screen, that what our mind tells us 
is there because I think there's a certain interest there and that's a love for for the property, I guess you would say, a respect for the property that that I will set out and say, okay, I want this to look like the A-wing fighter that we see for one quarter of a second before it plows into the bridge of that Star Destroyer. That's what I want to make this look like. But then there's other times that I'll build, uh, uh, you know, another kit and I go, just like what y'all are talking about, I want this to look like as if it were a real object that exist, existed in time. And I, I try to apply my military experience to it. You know, if this was if this was a tank when I was doing that occupier tank, okay, if this was a tank going around in a, in a, a, a city fighting scenario, I've been in that. What does that look like? How does that translate onto plastic? Um, so I, that's where I think that, that, that letting your imagination take you to the place that is interesting for that build can be so beneficial. And another thing, each one of those is slightly different and require a slightly different skill set. And I think when, when I attack something from a different angle and apply different skill sets and try and achieve something that maybe I haven't achieved before, I grow my toolbox of what I'm able to do in, in so many ways. So I, yeah, I, I like doing them all the ways. And if, if somebody comes up with a new way to try and do it, I'm going to say, let me tackle that too, because it, it, I think it can all in the end be interesting because if I can do it and achieve the goal that I started out with, that's what makes me the happiest in terms of modeling to go. I achieved what I was aiming for. This is this is changing genres, but uh, I had I think it was in one of my vlogs I had talked about uh, that that Patreon supporters get it is you know I, I a while back when I was building aircraft I learned I started studying what they call the Spanish school uh, of painting and some of my friends looked at it and said whoa that's way too exaggerated I don't like that and I'm like yeah but if I can learn how to do this I just increased my skill set. You know, I've increased my knowledge of what is, is, is able to be applied to a model. And it's the same way with the studio versus the realistic. If I'm, if I'm learning about the studio way of doing things, then I can incorporate that into a more realistic pattern of weathering that is still an homage to the original because it's Star Wars, Star Wars and Star Wars modeling as an extension of it in my mind is not just just building stuff. It is, it is its own subculture. And, and I think there's so much fun in participating in all aspects of that subculture. Well, it kind of depends on what I'm doing. Um, when I did the Bandai 72nd scale X-Wing, I did it as red two, And I found every reference that I could to try to do wedges X-Wing. Was it screen accurate? Probably not. Um, I got it as close as I could. There's a lot of uh, details on the studio filming models from episode four that you just don't see. And so, so there's a lot of uh, artistic license you can take, but then again, I'm planning on in the TIE fighter group build, I'm doing a TIE striker and I'm going to give it a specific squadron pattern on one, one panel of the solar panels, just because I can, I'm not too worried about it. Um, when it comes to the realism, using the cockpit glass 
or just using the, the bare frame without the glass, I'll use the bare frame because I'm lazy. It's really easy to paint a frame and stick it on. And it still in most ways looks the same. And, and I, I hate taping off canopies. So, so that's, that's my excuse. There is something to be said about that. Doug, let's stick with you for a minute um, because you've kind of started to touch on it, but when you're building your star Wars models, um, do you finish them primarily in the Canon paint schemes or do you vary the finishes? So do you, are you willing to do either a finish that hasn't been on them before, uh, kind of take artistic license, you know, how, how strictly do you want to kind of stick to what's quote unquote Canon? I will go either way. Um, it depends on what I want. Like when I finally build a 48 scale X-Wing, I'm going to do red five because that's, that's the famous one, right? That's Luke's. I'll do that and I'll try to do it as close as I can. But let's face it, uh, there there were so many X-Wings in, in the galaxy that we never saw. You can paint it however you want. And if somebody has a problem with it, okay, uh, that's fine. That's your prerogative. I'm, I am absolutely fine with with going outside the lines and and painting it however you want. Rick, what about you? How uh, closely do you stick to Canon paint schemes? I think it depends on the uh, the subject. Like if you're going to do uh, Slave 1, it sort of demands that, you know, if you're going for the Empire Strikes Back look, you, you pretty much want to try and make it look as much like that as possible. But, you know, if you're just doing a generic X-Wing, you know, I basically made up my own call sign that I would be more than happy to do an X-Wing in that is nowhere near canon, but that pleases me. Well, first of all, I'd like to question what canon might be in this context, because I think that's debatable. But sec- secondly, I think that Rick's answer is a very wise one. If I was trying to depict an individual, uh, you know, vehicle or uh, character from the Star Wars universe, then obviously I'd try and be as, as close to, to the representations from the films as I could. Um, but I wouldn't normally do that except for maybe Slave 1, which I would very much like to do in the future. But other than that, I think I, I purposely stay away from that to have more freedom. I, I think in general, if, if a modeler were to ask me, should I paint it canon or should I do my own scheme, I would say, do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever makes you, you know, you think is going to be fun. I personally tend to stick with Canon um, because again, I'm usually thinking, okay, I'm building something from the movie. I saw something in the movie and I want to build that so that I can let my imagination play with that. That's one of the things that drives me. The other thing that drives me is just, just the practicality of being on YouTube. Um, if I'm building an X-Wing, nobody wants to see John's special, you know, Red Baron version of the X-Wing. Nobody cares. Um, you know, that's something I do, I would do for myself off camera. But I tend to like, um, personally, when I'm doing it, I tend to like to stick to Canon more. It's not that I I, I can't get off Canon. That's what I like to do. I, there was, I've built, I've actually built two of the Bandai A-Wing fighters. And the first one I did was back when I was blogging. And it was from Blue Squadron. I painted the stripes on it blue. And I made up this whole backstory that Blue Squadron was was the ones that were guarding the supplies out behind the base. And, uh, you know, that place where Luke waved to the Millennium Falcon when they're taking off. And I said that Blue Squadron had to guard all the supplies in the porta potties 
And, uh, you know, they, they never got any screen time because they didn't have a budding young Jedi among their ranks. And so I had a lot of fun just going slightly off canon uh, with that and coming up with a backstory. But I tend to like canon because I, I, I see something on screen and I think, ooh, I want to do that one and and or, or a scenario and I want to do that. And so that's that's how I tend to uh, I tend to think very try to think very much in universe just because, th- again, the kid in me. Uh, you know, whether I'm watching Clone Wars or whether I'm watching Star Wars or whether I'm watching The Empire Strikes Back or any of the three that we won't speak of or the ones that came later. Um, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking in terms of that and wanting to put myself in that unit universe. And so that's why I stick to it uh, for my personally. But when when somebody says, you know, I had a friend one time that did. um it was either an A-wing fighter or an X-wing fighter that he did as a NASCAR racing spaceship, and it looked absolutely cool, and I loved it. You know, so I, I'm I'm happy. The the question I always ask people, or did you have fun doing it? Um, that's the key thing, regardless of what you're trying to to achieve. Yeah, it's a, always a great point to remember. TJ, canon or non-canon? Oh. Yeah. Um, you know, both, I guess, um, that's, I, you know, I'll, I'll do the politician answer this, this go around. Um, I like both. Um, you know, obviously I think it was uh, Rick that mentioned, you know, if you do slave one, I mean, you got to do slave one, right. It's extremely iconic. And yeah, I don't, if you want to model a fire spray 31 as, you know, anything else, cause they exist you know, in the expanded universe, that's cool. Um, I wouldn't be too keen on doing that. And then someone calling it slave one, not that I, I mean, obviously I, I don't care cause it's not mine, but I wouldn't do that. And if someone did that, I'd be like, no, eh, is, you know, is it though? Yeah. But you know, I've done in a wing and I've done it in the Ralph McQuarrie, um, uh, color scheme from his, um, drawings when they were designing the a wing, you know, you never saw one on screen, but, it looks cool in the, in the, in the painting. So I did it, but you know, typically I usually come down on, you know, Canon to the films or another source. And that's really probably just boils down to my lack of imagination. If anything else, (laughs) if I had to be perfectly honest. All right. I want everybody to uh, take your star Wars um, fan hats off and put your modelers fan hats on for a minute. I'm going to start with you, John. Do you think that ILM's approach to the original trilogy modeling, where they were making physical scale studio models and they were actually using model parts from Tamiya race cars and tanks and everything, does that play a factor or inform your passion for the designs and the Star Wars models at all? Yeah. When when I look back at, at being a kid, and watching that. I don't remember if it was a TV show or a book or a magazine, and it may have been all three, but I remember something describing how they built the models and they were showing the parts of models that they had used from kits that I actually knew about. And that, that process 
it had never occurred to me as a kid that somebody would be paid to build models, let alone models that would be in a movie as cool as Star Wars. Because when I walked out of that theater, I was not entirely convinced that that wasn't real and they just filmed it and it was a documentary. Um, it, it seemed so realistic to me. So the, the, the process they went through to build those, because it was something that I could put my hands on, that I could go, okay, wait a minute. So I can just take all of these spare parts that I've got laying around and glue them on things and make them look different. And I tried some experiments, you know, and as a 10 year old, 11 year old kid, I, I it was horrible. Um, but it, it, it made me think I could possibly do this one day. Um, it inspired me, you know, and, and so, yeah, the, the, the practical modeling side of it, where they actually build models for filming, uh, that, that really had a huge effect on me as a kid. And even, even to this day, when I'm watching how they do certain things, when I'm watching, like, uh, you may have seen the video where they built uh, a filming model of the Mandalorian ship, the, the ship from that, and, and they, they filmed it the way they used to. And I'm watching that going, I'm glad to see something like that is still done because it, it drives imagination. And it, again, it, it pulls us into the universe. You know, even now I can, I can build a Bandai kit like on the Y wing. If you look on the back of the Y wing, you can see that on either side towards the back, there's a couple of shovels that, that were, that are just there on the surface. You know, they look like they're from an old Sherman tank or something like that. And I love how it points back to that, that very practical, okay, let's get some parts on here and get this done because it just, again, it in inspires me in a way that something that's just CGI generated doesn't necessarily do it in the same way. I mean, yeah, uh, obviously. I mean, I, I think it's, it's well documented that ILM's use of Greeblies is what makes those those miniatures uh, that they use to film so visually interesting and and grounds it in a way like because you know they're made up of or not made up of have things on them that the eye that the modern person recognizes you know especially if you're a modeler i mean you look at the back of a tie fighter there's a sherman bogey right on the top i mean it, everyone knows it's there the the, the millennium falcon has what it's a Ferrari engine or a transmission right there on the side. I can't, I think it's the transmission case, you know, stuck right on the side. If you know what that looks like, it's instantly recognizable and you can do it with, with most of the, not probably not so much on the, the X wing. I think it's mainly flat and smooth, maybe a little bit on the, the droid trench behind the pilot. There might be some stuff in there, but you know, especially on the large, the large ships, when you look at them, you can see little pieces and, and yeah, that like that as a modeler, you see that. And, and as just as a casual viewer, that helps make it seem real when it has a, a, a real looking thing attached to it. If that makes any sense. It's, it's like the, the, the blockade runner that you see at the beginning of star Wars, when somebody pointed out to me that the front of that is just basically a couple of KFC buckets put together and turned on their side, I could never unsee it. But when you see it, you're like, that is so cool. It's just, just some paint buckets put together, 
and then they just stick everything else on the end. I, I love that. Right. And I, I believe the, uh, I guess the nose cones of the Y wing engine nacelles, I believe are women's pantyhose. Yeah. Legs. Legs. Yeah. Legs. Legs. yeah. They legs. came in an egg, right. And they yep. use, just use the two halves and, and popped them on there, which is hilarious. Really. Yeah. <laughs> you think about it. Yeah. You know, for me, it was the blockade runner that I remember. It wasn't that they were KFC buckets. It was that if you could look close enough into that cockpit, there was a Playboy centerfold on the back wall. And being being a perverted little boy, that was impressive. <laughs> well, Doug, what, what about you as a, as a modeler? I mean, do you think that informs your passion for the subjects? The fact that you can see all these uh, modeling related greeblies? Yeah, later on in life, it sure did. Early on, um, you would I would have said, "Hey, look they they modeled that tank after the Millennium Falcon, you know, not the other way around." <laughs> but but yeah, absolutely. I think it's really cool to be able to look at and recognize something for what it is, but step back and see the big picture and see just what an incredible overall package they put it in, and how it all comes together to make some of the coolest designs ever put on film. And it was so distinctive for the time because, I mean, if you think about in general, the designs that we saw before that, they were all smooth. They were all very smooth, very flat, you know, whether it was from Star Trek or from any of your sci-fi movies, it was discs, it was very, very smooth curves, things like that. And all of a sudden you've got these things flying around that aren't aerodynamic and they just got all these parts on them and they're dirty and they're beat up and it just it's i think it's just why we love it yeah i agree with that it's there's a certain uh sterility to old science fiction at least in my eye where the the weathering and the the you know little parts and things that that draw you in it it definitely creates a um i don't know if organic's the right word but it, it just makes it more real. And like Doug was saying, you know, when you're a kid, at least when I was a kid, I, I didn't care about all the other parts, you know, uh, I couldn't pick out, you know, pieces of a plane or a tank on a, on a, on a ship, you know, they certainly weren't using mid seventies monogram band models. Like I had that part. I didn't care about. It wasn't until I, I got older and, and as an adult, you can appreciate that a lot more, but, um, as a kid and and when I was drawn into it, it didn't matter at all. It just looked cool. Enrique, as a mini painter and a, and a kind of a wargaming aficionado, what's your take on this? Uh, what do you think about those designs and the physical models with all the model parts stuck to them? Well, I think they're impressive. And I, I remember watching a documentary about it ages ago, but I'd, I'd be lying if I said that it has informed my own modeling you could say that it does now, but um, not to begin with. To be honest, as a as a child or as a as I developed a passion for Star Wars, um, as I said before, I would have to say that it was the the Kenner action figures that really made the, the biggest impression on me. <laughs> well, Enrique, while I've got you, I've got another question here. You you kind of brought up in the chat the 3D printing. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, with the role of 3D printing, you know, printers becoming more and more affordable, files are available readily um, for a pretty, you know, reasonable cost. What would be the one 
subject in the Star Wars universe that if you could 3D print and make a model of it, that would be your first choice. Well, I've already bought several files, as a matter of fact. It remains to be seen whether I have the capability to print them myself. I just got a resin 3D printer, but it doesn't have a very big bill plate, so it cannot print very large objects. But I bought um, the ship from the Mandalorian, 3D model for that, and also an AT-80. <laughs> my, my dream would, would be to have a, a huge AT-80 model. That would be my, my childhood dream made true. <laughs> So like 135th scale, or how big are we talking? Well, well, 48 at least, I would say. All right, Rick, 3D printed subject. You can 3D print anything in the universe. What are you going to push uh, push the button to make? Well, I know what I want as a uh, plastic injection mold kit. So I'm going to try to go something a little different just to uh, to keep that separate. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to go with my injection molded answer anyway. Uh Either way, whether it's 3D printed or injection molded, I really want a sand crawler, a good sand crawler that that you can weather. I mean, just with all the, uh, the detailing products, the, the weathering and the armored techniques, it lends itself perfectly to a sand crawler. And I just, I really want to take a shot at, at uh, making a really beat up sand crawler. I can have Jawas on top, like in the Mandalorian with their little patio set. <laughs> or uh, <laughs> or not, but uh, that's that's where I would go. Well, I would have said Sandcrawler too, but I'll I'll go on a different uh, go with a different one. I would I would have um, a Tie Bomber. Just just one of those cool things we didn't see a lot of in the movies, but it was it was a really cool design. Kind of took that that Darth Vader's Tie Fighter, the Tie Advanced wings and uh, panels, and then put that double pod on it. It was really, really cool. Um, just, just, uh, never, never got the model kit of it that I would have loved to had. I'm going to go with something that I think has already been 3d printed. I think I might've even seen it. Cobb Vance speeder from the Mandalorian. The one that kind of looks like, uh, one of the engines from Anakin's pod racer. That thing is, uh, that thing's really cool. I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that a file of that exists. I feel like I've seen one on social media somewhere. Yeah, I think Duke's uh, Duke's models had one of those that he had purchased. That's a, a great choice. Ten year old John, I know you're you're over there going, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> what what, what uh, subject are you three D printing in your garage? You you know me too well, man. There is it, there, there's quite a few I could think of, but right at the top of the list. One of those Republic gunships, man. I I would like to have three or four of those, and do this do this diorama with those things coming in. You know, they're coming in low and out of the rising sun. And about a mile out, they're going to turn on the music. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, that's that's what I want. That's what I want to see those because I see those. That's that's one of the areas. This is you can tell. Oh, I'm getting excited. I'm actually getting goosebumps. This is one of the areas that I can watch that on screen, you know, Clone Wars or something like that. And I can see them zooming in with the doors open and they're holding on like that and they're waiting to jump off. And I can relate to that. I can I can say, okay, that's something that I can relate to from my universe that I've lived with this universe. And trust me, when when I did stuff like that, I was thinking of stuff like Star Wars, even though it predates all of that stuff. I'm thinking okay, you know, it's kind of weird, but I'm, I'm thinking that th- this is a cool time. And that's that gunship, 
man, it just looks cool. And I'm seeing the dudes jumping out of it and I'm going, yeah, that's that 3d print me one of those. I, I don't know if I'll ever get into 3d printing because I, I have a feeling I would botch it up, but man, if I could get my hands on one of those, I would be a happy camper for sure. Bandai and fine molds have really changed the game for star Wars modelers with regards to engineering fit and quality. What, what is that one special subject that is missing from the lineup of currently available injection molded kits? The tie bomber for sure. I I'd go with uh, Doug on this. It just, I mean, the, the Bandai's already got three quarters of it designed between the, uh, Darth Vader's TIE Fighter and the TIE Striker with the, the long pod, they, they're most of the way there. So it doesn't seem like it'd be too much of a stretch for them to, to uh, put the rest of it together. If it were possible to have the huge ATAT that I mentioned before, that would be awesome. I would like the TIE Bomber as well. That would be really interesting. But I, I would love to have a, a bigger uh, Slave 1 model. The one that, that I've seen um, is a bit too small for my, for my taste. Like I, I prefer whenever possible, bigger models, to be honest. I find them easier to work with. Uh, give me the uh, Tidarium. Um, not not in the scale that the original kit came out in the 80s. That's a bit too big for me, but something that would fit with the, the uh, 144 scale would be perfect. Something you could you could set alongside the Millennium Falcon and uh, and have a nice contrast there with, with design and and everything. That would be that would be my choice after the tie bomber, but we've already talked about that. I mean, my heart wants to say tie bomber, but since like I'd be the third person to do that, I, I'm not going to go with that one. I don't want to sound like I'm copying everybody. You know, you know what I'd like to see. Well, you know what? There's there's two things, and they're they're related. One, at least a 148 scale Y wing. Give me that, like yesterday. Like seriously, that thing, the Y wings are the best anyways. And that's an undisputed fact. Everyone knows that <laughs> um, you can fight me if you want. Y wings are the coolest, but uh, uh, one seventy seconds. Okay. I guess, but man, one forty eighth would be awesome with all the, you know, exposed bits and bobs on the, on the back. And in the same vein, an original Y wing, like, like the one from, I think from the clone wars, or maybe I think it was in the clone wars, you know, with, with the, yeah. with the, panel still on it it's a little less little you know a little less exciting but it would still be really cool to you know have one how it looked and then when when they were made and then have the one that how it looked when the rebels you know managed to get their hands on some john what's that new injection molded kit that you'd buy 13 copies of well i i think my default answer would be anything not already produced um because just if it's star wars give it to me but more specifically, I think there are some really interesting designs in Clone Wars that that have been not served or underserved. Uh, the, the the gunship being one, um, but there's others. There were there were fighters in there that you can see, you know, that they made them like they would look like precursors for the X wing. Um, you know, there there are various transport ships and utility ships and all of that, that I think just ground vehicles that just provide just so much uh, to do. And, you know, like stuff from the Mandalorian, you remember the carrier, the the troop carrier that all the stormtroopers showed up in at the, towards the end of season one, 
that was actually the Hasbro toy that was never actually in the movie. And they made that for yeah. the Mandalorian. I, I would love to see like something like that. In fact, I think, I, th- I think I may have pre-ordered it from, uh, for, for Star Wars Legion. I think they've actually come out with that now that I'm thinking about it. It's just not been released, but I think, I think some of those, those models like that, um, I would love to see them, but heck, if it's Star Wars and you injection mold it, I'll buy it and I'll build it. All right, John, we're going to stick with you for a minute. We're going to give you a cake one. What is your favorite Star Wars build that you've done? It doesn't matter what format, doesn't matter what scale, doesn't matter if it's a star in your YouTube videos, your favorite Star Wars build you've ever done. It comes down to, and I can't pick which one I like the best, Bandai's Snowspeeder or Bandai's A-Wing. They both have wonderful qualities you you can do so much with them. Those are kits that if you told me I had to build 10 of them in a row, I would do it gladly. I love I love all of the Bandai stuff. Um I love the Star Wars universe, but those two I've had I've built two of each and I've had fun with all of them that I've built and I will probably build more in the future and if somebody says, "Hey, I'm thinking about getting into sci-fi um and you know, can you make some recommendations?" I always tell them, get the Snowspeeder or the A-Wing. One of those two kits is just, I I think they are the absolute gold standard for me on engineering, fit, detail, and just overall fun. Well, I've done two, and I'm working on another two, like I said. Um, My favorite one to date was the Star Wars Legion AT-AT, which I believe Johnny has done as well. And uh, also, I'd like to say that I recently got um, the Bandai Snowspeeder, that that's in my in my stash and that's thanks to john whose videos on it i've really really enjoyed thank you well for now because there's one that i haven't built for now i would go with it's a toss-up i've built the ones john mentioned are absolutely phenomenal kits but i've loved both the a-wing or the not the a-wing the uh, y-wing and the atst from bandai they're both fairly complex for a bandai kit there's a lot of parts I would, I bet you, I would go with the the Y wing in this one. Just, just the detail, the fit, and and the fact that I've got this good sized, uh, even for seventy second scale, the Y wing's a good size. I I loved building that. I've built two of them. I'm they're going to be reissued in a month, and I'm going to get two or three more because I will build those again and again and again. I really enjoyed building the uh, the Bandai Adat and. I call it the AT-AT, not an AT-AT. You know, there's not a, uh, you listen to military guys talk acronyms and they never spell out the acronyms. They just say the word. So AT-AT for me. You know what? It's a toss up. Your last build is always your favorite, right? So I want to say the 148th scale, a TIE fighter that I did because I really liked it. I think it turned out pretty good. Um, and it's, it's awesome. It looks great. My, my cabinet too, especially alongside the it's one seventy second scale of brothers because for some reason I have quite a few uh, tie fighters in there. But I know Scott will kill me if I don't mention this, and I think I'm gonna have to go with the Bandai one seventy second scale uh, X wing that I did in Porkins uh, Red Six um, color scheme. So awesome! I. I could not have been happier with how that turned out. And 
Oh, it sucks that I don't have that model anymore. I, I know it's it's happy in its its new home uh, with my friend Aaron, and I, he loved it too. That's why I sold it to him. And now I, every day I kick myself for doing that because I I wish I still had it. I'm gonna ask uh, kind of a a different question. It seems like most of uh, most of you guys have talked about either the original trilogy or the nine Skywalker films. Uh, predominantly, but I want to know. I'm going to start with uh, with you, Rick. I want to know your favorite modeling subject from either Solo or Rogue One, one of the uh, off movies. Uh, for Rogue One, you what I would let me go with this. What I would like to see is the Hammerhead Corvette that they uh, use to push the Star Destroyer. I'd, I'd love to see one of those. It's got to, for me, it's got to be the U-Wing fighter. I wish they would release it in a little bigger scale, but I just, I just like that design. That is just such a cool, multi-purpose in terms of its roles on the battlefield. I just love that design. Um, I'd go with the, the, uh, TIE striker. Just, just a cool, cool design. It took the TIE fighter, uh, base and, and, and made it something a little different, but didn't go too outlandish with it. Definitely, that would be my choice. That's a tough one. Um, and you know, I'm actually I was I was going to try to maybe pick something from Solo, but I don't remember anything really special that we didn't really see before in that movie that was really new ship wise. I mean, I, I also I also like the Tie Striker. It's it's pretty cool. I, I was not the biggest fan of it at first, and and I know Scott. I know I've mentioned this. I'm also not the biggest fan of Rogue One. I think it's fine. Um, so I think I've only seen it once, maybe twice. But I do like the Striker. It, it grew on me, especially after I built the small version that Bandai put out. I really enjoyed that, and it does look pretty cool. Well, I'd go with the TX-225 Occupier Tank from Rogue One, which I've painted and done a video on, because I really like that that new vehicle. Oh, you know, I, I forgot about that. Those are cool. No, no, no. You already said your answer. Yeah, that, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not changing my answer. I'm not changing my answer. But I honestly did. I forgot about it. Plus, that's a that's a cool scene in uh, in Rogue One. And you get and you get two with the uh, with that one one forty fourth set from the uh, with the Tide Striker and the Ewing. You get two of those tiny little tanks along with it, about the size of a matchbox. Yeah. They're, I, think I, just, I threw them back in the box, and they're they're floating around here somewhere. <laughs> Going to start uh, this last question with John. We've mostly been talking about vehicle models here. What non-vehicle uh, Star Wars figure is the most appealing to you, and why? I, I've, I mean, there's so many. Especially when you when you step outside of the Bandai, your typical scale modeling uh, offerings, which are great. And you get into the world of Star Wars Legion, the tabletop game stuff. I, I kind of like anything that is the, you didn't know their name um, or they weren't a major character, uh, just any kind of just grunt, you know, whether it's the, the rebel commandos or your, your uh, shore troopers or any of those things. I mean, I love the hero stuff. But with the hero stuff, you have very little freedom. I mean, nobody's going to, you know, give, give, you know, Han Solo, you know, a weird hairdo or dress him up in different colors or things like that. 
But I, I think just any of the figures that are kind of grunt figures, the frontline troops, that's that's the stuff that appeals to me the most. And then even though on screen I didn't like them from a good guy, bad guy perspective, I find that the figures that represented the various bounty hunters, those seem to be a lot of fun to paint and uh, and to work on just because there's so much freedom in what you can do with those. Uh, I don't really have a good answer for that, uh, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I don't I can't really come up with anything really off the top of my head. You kind of threw me a, a curveball there. Just a vehicle guy, man. You can't help it. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Enrique, what about you? Well, actually, funny you should ask me that because just like literally, I don't know, three hours ago maybe, I finished building a uh, Stormtrooper, Bandai 112 Stormtrooper with my son who is six years old. Mostly he did it himself. I just helped here and there. And it was astounding to me that, um, you know, there, there were kids that well designed and at the same time that easy to build. It's amazing. I had no idea that like six months ago, I didn't know those existed pretty much. And yeah, so I'm looking to to get more of those and uh, keep building them with my with my son. He, we really enjoy doing that together. Also, echoing what John said, there are some great figures for um, the Star Wars Legion game. If if you guys, anyone who's until now only been into scale models, are interested in in getting some, it's approximately one forty seventh scale figures. I would highly recommend them. They're really really nice. I really like the tanks in the Legion. I like that one that from the front looks like a clone trooper helmet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the saber tank. Yeah, that's so cool. Doug, what about you? Non-vehicle uh, related subject. Um, I've got a few of the different Bandai Astromech droids. And I I really like those kits a lot. There's something about, I mean, Astromechs are just cool. R2-D2 is a lot of people's favorite character. And there are so many cool variations on that same design, that basic design that have been um, that have been released over the years that you can pick out throughout the movies. And I, I build any of those. My personal favorite is Sand Trooper. I just uh, not that long ago. I'm working on the the prequel area era Clone Trooper right now, but the one I would go back to and build again and again and again is is a Sand Trooper. All right, last question. Let's go back to modeling for a moment. The company Archive X makes Star Wars studio scale model accurate colors. And until now, they've only been available in enamels, which have been, you know, kind of becoming more and more unpopular. However, they've just released their entire line and they're going to be expanding it in acrylics. So, uh, John, how interested are you in obtaining Star Wars accurate colors? I tend to be, I mean, I like using stuff out of the bottle, but at the same time, I've gotten more and more hesitant to try a lot of new stuff because it's been rare that I've found anything that just blew my socks off and was better than what I had. So from a, from an, a money standpoint, I, I you know, I might try a few just to see, but I think... I was this way when I when I when I was weathering my aircraft. I always felt like if I got close to, in the base colors to what I was going for, 
the weathering and putting on tonal variations and fading and shading and all, it changes the color so much that starting off with a 100% accurate color for me is kind of pointless um, because by the end, it's never the color that it started off as. Uh, so uh, a lot of times the colors that I choose as the base colors are more from a standpoint of, okay, how is this going to appear after I do all of the weathering rather than how does it appear before all of the weathering? So I think that's cool. Um, and I'm glad that somebody's doing that because if somebody's doing that, that means there's a market for it. And if there's more sales of that, that means there's more sales of Star Wars kits and more people will produce Star Wars kits. So I think it's a cool thing. But for me, um, I, 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 I always think, how is this color going to play out at the end with everything on top of it? And so I don't get too hung up on, is this a pure Canon color? I think you know my answer, Scott. I, I don't care. Kind of echoing what, what John was saying, you know, after weathering, you, you know, you change, you change the tone of the color drastically in some cases. And, and I, I understand the, the value of the very specific, um, studio colors. And that's great. If you're going with a studio weathering scheme, which for the most part was just air looks like airbrushed on streaking and spatters of, of random colors. Um, and I don't paint like that. I, I apply, you know, more modern and I guess armor centric, uh, weathering with oils and enamels and filters and all that kind of stuff. So reefer white to paint a, um, my take on the millennium Falcon doesn't matter because if I painted it reefer white, I'm going to weather on top of it my own way and it's not going to look the same. So as long as I get close, you know, I, I don't care. And like me personally, I have, I have a, a tie fighter color that I like. I have two actually, depending on how I want to do it. Uh, you know, I have an X-Wing color that, that I've mixed that I like that, that looks the way I want it to look. And I mean, is it the same? Probably not. Or uh, to the scale of the filming miniatures, probably not. And I don't care. So yeah, it's just not, I'm not, I'm not really all in this, just that interested in it. To echo what's been said about weathering, darkening your paint, um, that's something I've found to uh, my dismay more than on more than one occasion. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. I'll, I'll continue to mix my own. Um, if I can get it out of a bottle close and a little lighter than I'm than my finished product is going to be, sure. Um, but I'm not terribly worried about. I mean, I'll try Archivex. I'd love to give it a try. I just I just don't don't find that much interest in it for me. I think it would serve as a uh, maybe a baseline to where you could, um, and certainly for, I, I think the value in that is going to come for the people who uh, don't maybe have that much experience putting together their own paint mixes and things where they want to get close to the, uh, you know, the, the studio version and are necessarily interested in weathering it heavily and, uh, I, I think that's probably where that uh, provides the most value is is getting somebody close without having to do a lot of the extra work. Well, I think as Rick said, I think it'd be useful and interesting for beginners primarily. Uh, I prefer to mix my own colors and I don't really use uh, water-based acrylic so much, which is what you said they were, right? Yeah, that's what they are. 
Yeah, not really my cup of tea. I, I rather use uh, lacquers most of the time or XF paints from Tamiya with lacquer thinner. And speaking of lacquers, you know, you reminded me of the AK Real Colors line, which I use as well. And even though the sole purpose of that painting line was to provide paints that were 100%, you know, historically accurate, uh, there are several colors that, uh, as I think TJ mentioned in one of your episodes, it's uh, debatable whether they're actually accurate despite the brand's claims. So ultimately, I don't think it makes that much sense. Well, all right, guys. Uh, terrific discussion on everything, you know, Star Wars modeling related. Appreciate everybody uh, coming on and, and talking about it. It's been a lot of fun. Sure. I'll, I'll just say something that needs to be said. Anytime we talk about Star Wars, I need to throw props off to uh, John Williams. Without his music, man, those music, those movies wouldn't have been the same. I love that. I, I listen to it uh, a few times a week still. I just I just want to see more Star Wars models. As I've talked about several times, making the switch from building aircraft to sci-fi, generally, now there's some exceptions. Bandai is an exception. There's others. Generally, I've been really disappointed with a lot of the, the models in terms of their engineering and their fit and their detail that exists in sci-fi versus what I was used to in the aircraft world. And I really wish that a lot of these manufacturers would step up and put more into the engineering that if we had, if it was, if it was the standard, you know, with aircraft, you've got so many that are so good. You've got, you've got Edward, you've got Tamiya, you've got Hazigawa, uh, you know, there's, there's just you can just rattle off these ones that are such good, well-engineered kits, and I would love to see that in in uh, the, the sci-fi in general, but Star Wars in particular. Um, I, I won't go, you know, ripping on any brands, but there's a couple of brands that when I see the, their name on the box, to me, that's just kind of a warning label because it's it's like okay this is this is not going to be a really good modern standard of a kit i would like to see that improved in the star wars universe because bandai's bandai i mean bandai's they've got their their stuff down but like when i started building and i keep bringing them up but the fantasy flight games kits from star wars legion i mean this is this is for a tabletop game this isn't necessarily for scale model builders, but the quality and the fit and the overall detail in those is just miles ahead of so many of the other things that are out there. So I wish, I wish there was more of that. There's been a lot of talk about the uh, Star Wars Legions and I actually didn't know about that until fairly recently. And I, I watched both of the, uh, the videos that Enrique did with ATST and the, and the tank and, you know, them. I'm not a Warhammer guy, but if I was going to do a tabletop war uh, setup, it, I'm, I'm tempted. It looks it looks pretty cool. Thank you, Rick. First of all, and I wanted to echo what Rick and uh, and John both said with my parting shot, uh, which I would like to make into a suggestion as well, if I may. I'm on Facebook, and I'm a member of several Facebook groups to do with Star Wars, and basically. One of the biggest groups is dedicated to Star Wars scale models and the other one to Star Wars Legion models. And there seems to me that I'm one of very, very few people, and John is another one here, 
who is simultaneously in both camps. It seems like they're totally separate and isolated. So I would like to propose a community challenge, if I may, that those of us who are primarily Star Wars scale models, at some point in the next few months, try a Star Wars Legion model, and vice versa, those listeners who are Star Wars Legion or Wargamers, that they try a Star Wars scale model, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great thought. Uh, those Legion models have uh, been intriguing. I've watched your videos and John's videos as well. And like Rick, I've been intrigued by those builds. Uh, you know, it, it Star, you know, there's a lot of animosity and modeling in general. And uh, you, that kind of gets cranked up a notch when it comes to Star Wars, because as everyone knows, the only people that hate Star Wars more than than, than anyone is Star Wars fans. And uh, that comes out in in scale modeling, and you see it on Facebook, and they argue and they bicker and they more or less insult people, you know, because of the way they choose to do their models. I mean, come on, nerds, just chill out, man. Let people have fun. <laughs> Let people enjoy things. You know, it's it's, and I've experienced it myself, and it's annoying. You know, you you post a nice picture of a kit, and someone's like, "Oh yeah, that that piece is wrong." I don't care. It came in the kit that way, man. I'm not rebuilding half the kit to please some nerd on the internet. So just chill out and have fun and, and enjoy the hobby. Do you remember when Rogue One came out and people were complaining that how could the pilot see flying the TIE Striker with those yeah, wings sticking out? The, and I was like, have you seen a TIE Fighter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. This has been a, a lot of fun. Great discussion. John, thank you for taking the time to uh, come back on the show and talk to us some more. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Enrique, thank you for joining us all the way from uh, Germany today and uh, talking about Star Wars with us. Thank you very much for having me, especially given that I'm a beginner at this. And uh, it's been it's been a pleasure and an honor. Well, you're anything but a beginner. But anyway, thank you, Enrique. Uh, Rick, thank you for joining us. Thanks for supporting the podcast, and I hope you've had a good time talking to everybody. Oh, it's been a blast. I've served as the uh, the, the everyman proxy for the, for this particular episode, and I appreciate you guys including me. That was a lot of fun. And then Doug, TJ, thanks. You guys really appreciate you participating as well. My pleasure. Hey, like I already said, I had to be here, so <laughs> it was it was uh, mandatory. It was mandatory. <laughs> all right well thanks a lot everybody appreciate it you guys take care and uh, we'll talk soon take care guys see you likewise bye thank cheers you. Well, we hope you enjoyed that Star Wars roundtable. Our next roundtable discussion will be in episode 18, and we're going to continue to have these uh, discussions as a regular part of our show. And I think that about wraps up episode 15, so we're going to go ahead and mosey on out of town. So thanks for listening. A very special thanks to our roundtable guests, Enrique, John, and Rick, and also to Anthony Goodman. Thank you again, guys. Stay tuned for future episodes where we will be bringing you more roundtable segments on various modeling genres or any topic we can have an engaging discussion. Coming up, episode 16, we have not one, but two awesome interviews. So until next time. 
to all of you out there in the posse, and especially to you, gents, my fellow co-hosts, have a great couple of weeks, and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers, all. All right. See you, John. Have a good one.